All right, ladies and gentlemen, pens and papers out, and welcome back to class. As always, I am Professor Chris, and with me for our little trip through history is the gentle giant himself, the Sultan of the Studio, Adam. How you doing, buddy? What a fantastic introduction. We're trying something a little different with that. I'm great. I am. I'm pumped about we, today. We get into business. Yeah, we're getting down to it, and it's history class today um, about a, a gentleman who I thought ooh, that. Ooh. I think he was a gentleman, but I thought that he that there were some misrepresentations of his stature that I had in my life, and kind of like in pop culture, we're talking about Napoleon today. Um, not when I dynamite. say Napoleon, no, not not dynamite. Napoleon a Bonaparte. He did blow some shit up, but he didn't use dynamite. That's true. When you hear about him, though, I mean, what's the first thing you think of? Napoleon complex? Yeah. Yeah. Short, short man, little man syndrome. Turns out he uh, actually was a normal sized man for the time. So um, he was, yeah, he he five seven. Yeah, I, which, and that was average height. I think that's still sort of right around where we are today. Interesting point about that. It came from propaganda, propaganda made by the victors in this whole situation, the British. Which unfortunately is a spoiler to our tale today. Um, our guy, well, not our guy, but the guy. Napoleon didn't actually come out on we waited, top. We waited 200 years for people, 200, 300 years for people to read the spoilers and everything <laughs> since this happened. We're not ruining anything. No, no. So uh, let's get into class. Um, we will see you guys on the flip side. Napoleon Bonaparte, born Napoleone a Bonaparte, was born August 15th, 1769, and born in, and it's so weird, dude, the fucking connections between the research. Okay, we just talked about, like, I just mentioned Corsica during, like, the D-Day stuff about all that, the territory and everything. Before last week, I had no idea what Corsica, and this guy <laughs> is born in Corsica, and apparently to a family like descendant from some minor Italian nobility. Well, it's also weird because before when we would talk about like the Middle East, it's like mm-hmm. that place was always up for grabs. It turns out just everywhere in fucking Europe was up for grabs all the time. It was just changing hands. Yeah, I, and it it would be like a year, it'd be two years. Corsica, I think, was a little bit different because it was an island. But as soon as France got a hold of it, they so kind it, of... Well, it did belong to Italy initially. Yep. That and Sardinia. But I don't know what happened in Sardinia. But anyway, so Corsica ended up being literally taken over by the French the year of Napoleon's birth, wasn't it? I think it was the year before, maybe. I think it was the second year into the reign. Okay. Born, like you said, Napoleone Bonaparte. I mean, that sounds like a name where you can play the pervert Napoleone Bonaparte. It's an Italian name. Uh, Yeah, but it's... You're fucking to the mouse in your hand. Maybe it's just because of, like, when you see, like, Ragu now, or you see, like, Napoleon, Mm -hmm. um, olive oil or anything like that. It just, it sounds Italian. It does. And he was. I mean, their whole family was, well, like yeah, you said. I mean, they came from that, they, you know, came from an Italian family. And the whole thing is, just because France now rules your, has, you know, rules your country, 
that doesn't then make everyone <laughs> technically it does make everyone French, but I mean French with a huge Italian ancestry. He didn't even speak French until he was like nine years old, and he did it very poorly after he did. Well, I guess it also helps the fact that he didn't move to mainland France until he was nine and start learning it because if you were staying on Corsica, you would probably be forced to learn a little bit about it in school or like, but you would still be speaking at home, just whatever your native Corsican was like some, it was some diet, um, version of Italian. Yeah. And he, he actually, like you said, he kind of grew up with some nobility. It wasn't like direct lineage or anything like that. I don't think, I think he came up like, not like rich, but well enough to do because essentially like, yeah, when he was nine years old in 1779, the family moved to mainland France. And it's when you think of France, it's so weird to think because you always think, like, especially with us talking about D Day for the last few weeks, France up closer toward Great Britain, you think more northern France. Mm-hmm. You completely forget that the south of France, like the climate, it it it's really wonderful. spans like the yeah, the south of France is what you think of like the uh, French Italy Riviera. Like, the French Riviera like and so then you have that, which is directly across then from like Egypt, right across the fucking Mediterranean. It's nuts. And so, yeah, they were able to just move from Corsica onto mainland France. And somehow he got a scholarship to like uh, a military academy. Basically, this wasn't like uh, for like older kids. This one was like more of, I guess, what you would call like elementary school. Elementary school, military <laughs> yeah, school. elementary school. <laughs> well, how many times in movies are they like, I'm sending you to military school and the kid's like 10 so there's obviously military school just for all ages. I guess. Oh, I, fuck. Kindergarten military school? Like, not, Nap time is not nap time in kindergarten military school. But it, <coughs> this is just another thing that kind of throws me off, too, because I immediately, whenever I think the French, sorry, French listeners, I don't think like fighting. I, I don't think war. I don't think quitter. Well, I do think quitter. But I, I don't think anything like that. But this was the a time French were always starting shit. Apparently, I, and maybe that's where it is now. Maybe that's why they like either try to run away or stay out maybe of it because of their history. And, and I'm not saying anything. Nick, I really want to go to France. I oh, really yeah. want to experience your guys' culture and everything like that. I'm just saying, and this is, I understand what this is. The pot calling the kettle back black because this is Americans <laughs> saying this, and our view. <laughs> our our view in the eyes of the world is not good. Yeah, we, we we know how we're seen, and you know what? I'm I'm sorry for that. We did some shit. You did some yes. shit. Our shit is more recent. You were apparently and doing shit for a long period of time, not all that long ago. But Could, I do think that maybe that's why France almost has that like that air about it and everything like you guys are so fucking snooty because you used to conquer everyone. And then you're, you got slapped and like knock that shit off. Cause we're not going to let you do it again. And then after you get invaded by the Germans, you're like, Oh, we, we, we need help. A couple times. This, uh, the parallels that get drawn. And I'm not saying that uh, we've talked about this before. I'm not saying that Napoleon was ever on the level of Hitler really in any way. But kind of the way that they did things was so very similar. I, there has to, maybe maybe more Germany as a whole. It's in like Napoleon. There's there's a there's a big wide freeway to dictators, and some you know go straight down the fastest route to it and just try to kill people and all that kind of shit. Napoleon kind of like was swerving side to side in certain lanes, and maybe he didn't know he was he. I, at a certain point, he knew he was going to be a dictator and everything like that. Oh, yeah. But early on, I think he was just kind of swerving around, advancing his way. Well, and along. he did his killing on the battlefields. Yes. I, 
and to try to quell a re- revolution. But other than yes. that, he he seemed like he was actually for everywhere that he conquered, he kind of seemed like he was the first version of SimCity. Yeah. Like it, he would show up in a place, he would take it this over. This is why I have such conflicting feelings about Napoleon, is that, okay, so he did everything through military conquest. I'm not saying that he was right to just go into these nations, but sometimes, like, the nations were fucking with him. Like, Austria and and France apparently just fucking hated each other. Austria. All the time. Never, ever gave up either. So... But at the same time, so he's conquering on this. And then at the times, I think that he should be like, you're done, dude. Like, if you didn't take this next step, you're good. Like, you could be seen as, like, a positive figure. You can concentrate on your country. And then he fucking, like, takes it three steps further. I'm like, why did you do that? And then it makes me think, it's like, this is where the crazy maniacal part of you is, is that you you can't stop. <coughs> you, you didn't really have, like, an end goal. You got to where you were going to be and being like, but I can get a little bit more. I can get a little bit further, and that's kind of what what he's about. But anyway, getting back, getting back to early on. Um, where did we leave off on this? Um, he was headed to military school when oh. he was in France, though, like mainland France. He was still very anti-French. He held a lot of sentiments towards what they did to his people. He in was super. What do they say? Like Corsican independence and mm-hmm. stuff like that. He was very vocal about that. He believed that his island technically should be free like he he's over enjoying everything that there was to do in france mm-hmm. and all that i'm sure he probably didn't enjoy it as much because it was probably just a reminder but at the same time he was fucking like <coughs> excuse me he it was already france when he was born so it wasn't like he grew up in a can you pass me yeah. the lucy's it wasn't like, no free ads it wasn't a no, situation this, this is debate them in okay. this is the one freebie you guys get lucy breakers you're I paying for the them. next one um but he really, <coughs> he only had allegiances because his dad was such like a radical Corsican or Corsican independence mm-hmm. push. And he was also like a politician too. So yeah. he was kind of grew up in, not into that, but he grew up around it. So he must have, must have had a general idea. But any hate that he harbored had to have just come from his family because it yeah. wasn't like he actually watched them come be mm-hmm. taken over. So well, it was and, just secondhand. Well, and this is going to go hand in hand with, so at this time, the the French is, France is being run by the, the king of France. So it's the monarchy that's running France right now. And then as he's getting king older. King George Seventh, I believe, I or the 11th? I can't remember fucking keep them and the kings of fucking England. The guy like that came George's back in and replaced and him was the 18th. Because there was some type of... Wasn't there like a relation between them or... There was I think it was just the lineage. Yeah. It was just the line like we see in England. It's one of the kings of France. So he... he His gripe is toward the current French re- regime is what it is. Not toward French as a whole because you're going to see where he just embraces it. Like, you know, fucking hook, line, and sinker. But... As, as a young man, he gets out of this younger military school and then gets offered into, um, gets an offer to go to this e- place called the Ecole Militare. I don't know how to fucking pronounce that in French. It's essentially like the top military school in the country. Both of them sound very much like they wouldn't be because the first one, first military school I went to was Brienne Le Chateau. Yeah, what was the, um, was it the Olympic Council that had the big long flowery French name? We did it during an episode. I can't remember what it was. Uh, soccer, wasn't it? Yes, it was the World Cup, like, and it was this, like, 18-word name about their fucking federation. Yeah, they, they're flowery about shit. 
And at this time, while he's going to school, his father dies, and he kind of becomes the head of the household, despite not being the oldest son. He was like the third oldest, and the father was like, these other two are fuck-ups. <laughs> Napoleon is our only hope. So he has to take over as, like, for support for, like, his mother and, like, still people living at home. He was, I think he was one of, his mom had 13, and I think, like, eight of them lived. Yes. So he was technically, like, one of eight. So yeah. he had eight other mouths to feed. Yeah. I think in a couple of his brothers school. were older. So they should have yeah, been out doing shit. They, Probably they got weren't. jumped in line to try to support the family. Like, that should say something. Yeah. So he ends up graduating one year when it normally takes two. So he fucking busts his ass and graduates out of this place. And in 85, he's made a second lieutenant in an artillery uh, regiment. So at this time, like artillery, if you're thinking about it now, it's like fucking big, big guns and all that kind of shit. All sorts of shit. Oh, yeah. I guess that could apply to anything. But when you're talking about like back then, this is basically cannon Cannon regiments. Cannons and slingshots were what they specialized in, I'm sure. They still did, like, trebuchets and slingshots? Uh, I mean, why wouldn't you? Like, that, it seems like outdated technology for the time. Is there a, te- is there a the more time. technical term for, like, a large slingshot? Or Catapult. Right? Cat, okay. Trebuchet, I think, is the same thing. It's just weighted different. That's the weighted one, and the catapult yeah. is just has a, can have. I think catapult solid trebuchet has the swing the rope, rope and gets the, yeah, the sling on it. Yep, that's right. Either way, one of the very cool things that I learned, which I'm sure we'll talk about eventually... Um, during this upcoming French Revolution, they created the guillotine. Yes, they did. Very odd that the French would create a guillotine, but it was a very effective method. There are method. so many fucking things that come in during this story. It's insane that are like widely known throughout history, oh, just yeah. like even common knowledge. So um, he becomes a second lieutenant in our artillery regiment, and there's basically against France at this point, is this when the French king has been deposed, right? By the time he graduates, the French king has been deposed and there's like a republic in place. Um, not yet, because 1789 is when the French Revolution kicks off. And they basically sweep in. They knock George out. Um, yeah, so by 1785, oh, George is out. Yeah, but 1789 is when the French Revolution happened. So the king was still in place at that point. So when did the siege of... Well, that doesn't make sense because the whole reason for the siege of Toulon and the British coming in and capturing French area was because they were coming in to try to take out that whole coalition thing. I think Toulon didn't happen until the 90s, though. Like, 93. You keep going. I'm going to look up my dates. Okay. Um, so yeah, French Revolution kicks off and he was still in France... He wasn't really big on what the French did in Corsica, and he sort of started to embrace the ideals of the revolution because the revolution meant change. The revolution meant that there could be a possibility for Corsican independence. You're right. Huh? You're right. Okay. And I'm, I'm a big enough man to admit that. <laughs> he really like saw the writing on the wall that this could change everything. And this French revolution, the first one that swept in, um, what were they called? The, what was the power structure? It was the directory directory. Yes. They did some weird shit. They that did. Sounds some... like such a fucking clandestine, like name that you would see on a movie now, like mm-hmm. the directory. Yeah. Like that's 1984 shit or whatever that, I that think they said it was called. a collection of five individuals, uh-huh. like not a, a tribunal is three, but a, a council of sorts that, that were kind of ruling. They kicked them off of a normal calendar. They went to a 10 day week. And yes, and it was like ten days a week, ten hours a day, or something like that. It just was a so very fucking weird. weird. And like there was no Christmas. 
Well, that was part of the religion that they just completely yeah, kicked out. They they didn't really let the Pope weird. in there. Again, can't really hate that idea. But at the same time, it was odd enough to where there oh, was Oh, that was chance. right. That's right. Because they didn't like how comfortable the crown and the church had become yeah. and were letting them interfere in, in different matters. Uh, and really, that's kind of like the first separation of church and state. And they fucking killed that king. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. George, I think it was George, one of the Georges. He went pretty quick. I don't know if he went the way of guillotine, but he certainly was. And then they evacuated the heir and the rest of the royal family. The British had evacuated them, and they were in Britain. Yeah. Okay. In that same year, like you were talking about, he was appointed the senior gunner and artillery commander Mm. of the Republican forces. That's right. Um, Later on that same year uh, that you were talking about, September 8th, is when his forces arrived in Toulon. Okay. And... He's such like a, he loved cannons. He was a cannon sexual. This dude, when he walked into that artillery he had room. cannon fever. Yeah. They didn't have like a very adequate amount. So no. he would go send them on raids to like old abandoned places. Forts in the towns yeah, and stuff. Old and fortresses. He, he knew tactically. He was such a tactician and he would study shit. He already knew where these places were. He's yeah. like, you're going to look here. You're going to look here. And they would like come back with like different cannons and shit and even during Toulon, I think early on, he couldn't get enough ammunition, enough cannonballs. He went and like built or he took over a foundry, a foundry, a foundry, foundry yeah. and started making his own fucking cannonballs. So if he didn't get it, he was so fucking industrious that he was just like, you know what? Fuck you guys. I'm doing it myself. A point before that. So the whole reason that the British take Toulon. So everyone's watching France during this revolution. Now you got to understand that. France being under a monarchy is the norm in Europe. All these other countries are essentially run by monarchies. Kings, queens. So they see what's happening in France, and they're like, oh, shit. We just saw a monarch get his fucking head chopped off. um, We don't uh, want to let this news get out. Yeah, revolution. (laughs) Um, We got to fucking not let this thing happen because what could – it could go one of two ways. They could – let it go and hope that it failed because then that would be an example to everyone that that couldn't work or they were scared as shit that it would work and they would, the people would be able to rule themselves through any other, you know, means. Yeah. And then all of a sudden they're on the fucking chopping block when their people create revolutions. So part of this, it was the first coalition they called it against France. Get used to this term, people coalition. There's going to be a fucking lot of them. And every time we say it, the word coalition is always opposite of just Napoleon. Yes. So a coalition of countries is or against kingdoms France. are just against France. Yes. Yeah. So it's everything is a numbers game. And we'll see that coming in to where the numbers game always was like not on the side of Napoleon. And when the uh, when it when switches. It, and when, when it, it was, he yeah, it was weird. He like he didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah, it was like he he was almost like a victim of his not, own success. I'm not sure what to do with my hands. <laughs> like that kind of shit. So the British come into this port city of Toulon and take it over and basically turn it into like a fortress and they send Napoleon to go handle it. He was somehow he'd written a pamphlet on artillery or something like that. It was popular with some higher ups in French, the French military, and so it kind of ingratiated him to them. So they gave him this assignment. But you couldn't just like go to Toulon and like do a siege and hope to starve out the British because they had the port and they had control. And at this point, too, like 
Port equals control of port the equals control, thing. but not even that. So Britain has always theirs has always been sea power. They don't field the largest like armies, but they have complete control over the sea. And so in this situation, because there's a good portion of French coast, both north and south, they can just bring in supplies and resupply, you know, whoever is in Toulon. So Napoleon actually has to force them out. And this is where you get your just first example of like the tactical brilliance and what he's going to display for his entire career. That's the best word I can think to describe it. Just, he was a brilliant tactician when it came to the battlefield. Um, so in Toulon, apparently there is a large hill where there's one or two of them. Yeah. And it, they basically can overlook, like you can see into the port and then you can see into the city. You could also, and you, yeah, because of the port, you could see over the coast and see where the ships were and everything. So he knew that wherever you needed or wherever like you needed to be there, mm-hmm. it was going to be at the top of one of those hills. Yeah. And of course the Brits knew it too. So they fortified those as much as possible, but the strategic brilliance of napoleon was we're not going to try to take him at the harbor we're not going to try to take him mm-hmm. in the city the, the most gonna... of the strength was in these positions where it was behind like the wall of toulon mm-hmm. and around the city itself so they had reinforced these hills but this isn't the bulk of like the english troops no this is just the most tactically advent- advantageous yeah. position yeah so he ends up capturing these hills. He's wounded in the thigh, like stabbed through with like a bayonet or a pike or something. Yeah. So this was the other very interesting thing about Napoleon was most leaders always lead from the back. They're calling the shots. Napoleon was not about that. Napoleon no. was out on horseback. And like you, you said, to his credit, he was stabbed with a pike in the leg on like the fifth day of battle or something like that. He, he was crawling through like a mud trench or got knocked into a mud trench and then got stabbed. And the thing is, too, is then he like rallied his guys. Yeah. And they saw their wounded commander, like, rallying him. Then they just fought. And this is going to be that thing throughout his entire career is he's so ingratiated to his troops because he's literally on the ground with them doing work. He even gets a nickname because of it. And it sounds like an insult, but because it was created with such affection by his men, he, he allows himself. I think himself. it sounds affectionate. Really? Yeah. I think it sounds like... Uh, not degrading, but demeaning. The little corporal? The little corporal. I, I mean, as a general, he's being called little corporal. But that was his deal. He was, they always talked about his tact for being able to be there to load the cannons, to put the shot in the cannons. He wasn't, he was out there on the front lines doing it. And they said so many times that they would see him riding through battle and they said they would see the ground being fired up between mm-hmm. his horse's legs because he was being shot at. So they capture these two hills, one hill, the high ground, basically, and they're able to fire, and they made sure to make a point of this, heated shot down onto the British warships and basically lit them on fire or did enough damage to where the British had no choice but to actually pull out. Heated shot means they were on fire or they were just warm? I don't know why they would be heated unless you were using them to start a fire. Oh, it was because one of them, what would happen is they would fire them because of the arc of the shot. Uh-huh. If they were hot, it's not going to make it matter for how much damage it's doing. But if it got into the powder stores or anything like that, yeah, it would start firing. Because one of them, and they said it was like as almost on cue for like the British retreat, they had hit one of the ships like in the powder stores and it just exploded. Got to feel like that's a big win for oh, them. Oh, yeah. I thought they may have been heated so they could retrieve them because if it was a cold steel 
cannonball, it mm-hmm. would hit and probably shatter. But maybe like warm steel cannonballs, when they hit, it would just stay intact. But the the I, heated thing makes yeah, sense. Yeah, I feel like the, the heated thing would have to be very intentional to start a fire. Well, you would also think that it would be pretty fucking hot after a bunch of gunpowder just exploded. Yeah, it. yeah. So he ends up coming back to Paris and... Literally, as he's coming back to Paris, first of all, he's already gaining popularity now because of this, because he just forced them out of Toulon. And as he gets back to um, Paris, there's like another counter-revolution going on of royalist supporters. So people that had supported the monarchy, they said a lot of it was like people in rural areas Mm -hmm. and like outside of Paris. So almost a very weird similarity between how like cities are in (laughs) our country where... You have more like, I guess, liberal people in the cities and everything minds. like that, and then outside you have more of the like loyalists. Well, and it's because they hadn't. Uh, when you're living out in the countryside, you probably you're ruling hear, yourself, kind of. Yeah, you hear a king's decree maybe like once every fifteen times. You don't see a bunch of troops walking around the street being dicks to you or anything like that. No, yeah, it's it's a completely different deal. Um, did he get his promotion on the way back, or was it? Um, it was after because it was what he yeah. did that got him the promotion. Okay. So he gets back, and so Napoleon is firmly on the not the royalist side. He's firmly on the revolutionary and the directory side. So he's in the support of this current government, which makes sense because he's being given military commands. Yeah. So he gets back. It's a situation in which there's like an actual sizable like rebellious Revolt. force yeah, like coming. in Paris that are coming forward like the directory and everything so they're like uh, Napoleon gets there like hey Napoleon there's some people showing up that kind of either want to depose us or kill us we're not really sure if you could just kind of stop them that'd be really great so he runs out and there's not really anything I mean he has his soldiers and everything he sends his soldiers he's like where's the cannons he's like well they're out kind of outside of the city and everything for defense he's like go get the fucking cannons now they go and grab a whole shitload of cannons, and I'm not sure where the directory is. It's at the royal. I would imagine it like would the have royal, to be in like the palace, downtown. something like that. And basically has these cannons now defending it. Well, some of these revolutionaries show up, and a lot of revolutionaries. A lot of revolutionaries show up. So Napoleon had this kind of mindset of. I can kind of like placate this thing a little bit and what's going to happen is it's going to drag this thing out. They're just going to, they're going to think it's a slap on the wrist if I don't do anything and I'm going to be dealing with this for a long period of time. Or I can just make an example out of some people and just nip this thing right in the ass. You come in at a five, they're going to push back and there's going to be some back and forth. You You come in at an an 11. Eleven's going to shut this oh, thing yeah. up real quick. And his eleven was something that they would load into the cannons called grape shot. Did you hear what it was? It okay, was, so you knew what it was. Yeah, it was like a bag of a rock, canvas bag of it, was it tiny rocks cannon, and lead balls? Just tiny cannonballs oh. about the size of grapes. It was buckshot. I, well, yeah, it's like a blunderbuss cannon. It turns the cannon into a shotgun. Oh, which at close range, very deadly. No, what what was the terminology he used when he told them to fire? Uh, it was give them a whiff of grape shot, wasn't it? Yeah, give them a whiff. That's that's what he said. He and also, right before that, was like, it's better just to meet these things head on. Than rip try off to... the Band-Aid. Uh-huh. I'm ripping off the Band-Aid. So he ends up ripping off the Band-Aid to a tune of about 300 people killed. 1,400. 1,400? Who got killed in the revolt. So I don't know if it was just the I think that engagement might have been 300. And then during the revolt itself, when those people probably started getting a little crazy when the other cannons started going off. <laughs> He's like, you get a whiff, you get a whiff, you get a whiff. 
So guess what? Guess who's really thankful that Napoleon got this got this thing squared away? He had a beautiful name too, Robespierre. Mm-hmm. Robespierre is a solid name for a Frenchman. And yeah, like you say, he, he took a shine to him and he sent him up. Well, this was when he becomes the colonel. He goes from colonel to brigadier general of France's Army of Italy. He gets the promotion at this point. I thought, was he made the commander of the French Army of Italy or was he made the um, artillery commander? Because he got, at one point, they're like, you're going to be the artillery commander of Italy. And then at another point, they said he was going to be the... Oh, yeah. I'm That happened beforehand. Okay. You're right. Um, but also, while he's in Paris, before he goes and takes command of the French Army of Italy, he meets meets a lovely gal, <sighs> Josephine. Uh, for our female listeners, I apologize for the words that I'm probably going to say about this lady. Um, but yeah, she just Just understand. I'm not saying this because I'm anti-woman. I'm saying this because she was just a generally shitty human being. She's a dirty, dirty slut. Yeah. Josephine de Bordonales or some French pronunciation of that last name. Here's the other thing too. When you're thinking about Napoleon, because everyone has this, well, he's like five foot three or whatever. Okay. First of all, again, he's five, seven. I also take offense to this because <laughs> I'm 5'9". I feel like 5'9 is pretty average. I feel like 5'7", I understand that's short, but you can still live a relatively normal life at 5'7", even in our society. So let's back off. However, Napoleon is not that attractive of a guy. No, he, he swung and missed a lot before this. He did. But at the same time, this guy is already the commander now of the French army of Italy. So guess what? It's not like she was a royal... And he was in the way that he talked to her and wrote letters to her and everything. Of course, we're getting a rose-colored view of history because certain Pussy things. Blind. Exactly. Also, because Napoleon's not going to write in his memoirs like I had to choke that bitch the other night. But the way that he, you know, tried to court Josephine and everything. You heard how he met her, right? It wasn't he the she was the mistress of like his, his commander. Or his some old shit? superior. His name was Paul Barris. Oh, that's right. And he's like, hey, Napoleon, I want to hook you up with this chick. And he's like, who is she? And he's like, I used to bang her on the side. That he was trying to get her off of Paul, or Paul was trying to get him Mm. off of his hands. He was trying to unload her. That's right. Yeah. So he just basically was like, hey, I have this issue. You can't find a woman to save your life. Have you met the little corporal yet? Do you think he called his dick in secret the little corporal? Yeah, probably the big corporal, just to make himself feel better. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm the little corporal. You're about to meet the big corporal, which I doubt it. Being a, a five seven man, anyway. That was apparently, he's able to get Josephine interested enough to marry him, so they end up getting married. She was interested more in the position and the cachet, the of social what it status. Brought. Oh, one hundred percent, because he was also going to be gone so much. Uh, well, and this is where I'm going to say some mean things. Um, Josephine was just a dog. Oh yeah, like, she started she, as soon as he was gone. Didn't she start banging her like one eyed, uh, like horse? Te- what did they call those? Um, stable boy. <laughs> no, there's a farrier or some shit. He, he, no, he was in the military. He was part of the cavalry, but he was like a Lieutenant in the cavalry with one eye. Well, and apparently he was a very striking guy. Oh yeah. Like um, a dashing eye patch and everything. Josephine herself grew up somewhere down in the Caribbean, I believe, because mm. she grew up on like a sugar cane plantation. Oh, that's uh, Haiti. Haiti, I think. Cause that was a French yes. colony. That's right. And apparently she had eaten so much sugar cane as a child and brushing teeth wasn't a big deal. It died the bottom of her teeth. 
teeth black, right? It just rotted them away to black. Jesus. So you see pictures of them or pictures of Josephine. And this is something that a I'm lot of people said. I'm trying to visualize said. a scene in a movie where a woman smiles and it's just like, yeah. <laughs> they said that if you had seen a picture or like a painting of Josephine and then met her in real life, you're like, that's not That's the same right. Rod. Because she, she learned how to smile with her mouth closed. So she pictures and paintings she because had she had to. <laughs> okay. So Napoleon even gets more points because this chick is a fucking uggo apparently. And so, not only that, he's sending her these sweet letters, my love, my lust, my my everything. She has everything I, she wants. He's sending her she has money, she has like an opulent lifestyle and everything. Not even close to how it's going to be no. going forward. And how the fuck she still stays around after all of this? It's going to make more sense later in Napoleon's <laughs> life, but early on, I don't fucking get it. Well, I, like you say, she was getting the money, but she was like Going as far as like reading these love letters to her friends and laughing about yeah. them, she was just the ultimate bitch with it. And like you say, the day after the, or two days after they got married, he gets shipped off to Italy. Yeah, so, so he he goes immediately. He's like wedding. I'm sure it, Napoleon did everything fast. Like he he moved fast. Mm-hmm. He ate fast. He fucked fast. Yeah. He did everything he could as fast as possible. So I'm sure he pounded it out. The they said the when he needed night. to sleep. Because he would be milling around making sure all the cannons were in correct positions Uh if he got tired. He literally wrapped his coat around him and sat down and slept between the cannons and then would just wake up when he was rested and start that shit over again. So uh, to think that he left his honeymoon was like, all right, get off the Like That's why I'm so conflicted on this guy. Like He's not as bad as some of the worst people. He just didn't know when to fucking stop. And that's, that's the biggest thing. And it was his undoing. That's right. So he goes down for the Italian campaign and guess who it's against? Get used to hearing about this. Um, it was where so they were. Where were they initially from? Austria, but Austria Hungary. That's what it used to be. Okay, and it was so Austria because it was all one area, something like that. Because sometimes they talk we're about. We're gonna Budapest. address this at some point in history. I don't know when, but it will pop up because everything fucking pops up at some point. Yeah, we'll get there eventually. Yes. But, so these Austrians will make. Pretty much an appearance in every single one when of these. When we do, I think, Caesar, I think this is when we're going to get an explanation for how the countries kind of get divided up. Probably. Very much so. But yeah, the Austrians have taken refuge and they've taken over Italy. And it, I think it was theirs. Because the, Austria after the was, fall of Rome? Because Austria was part of the greater Roman Empire. So I want to say that the Austrians were doing something... And that's why he went down there to sort business out and ended up whooping the Austrians' ass. Like, just beat him in every engagement. Enough so to where there was clear road between him and Vienna, and he starts marching toward Vienna, which is in Austria at the, at uh-huh. the time. Or it might still be in. I'm My geography for Europe I'm pretty sure Vienna's, yeah, it is. it has to be the capital. Okay. So, it- starts marching toward Vienna, and they come out, and they're like, hey, 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 how does the treaty sound? And he's like, all right. Well, and that was the move because it was 1794, I believe, at this time. And it was the Battle of Sagrio, Sagario, whatever it was. And he mowed through them. Then he went through uh, this place called Ormia, rove through them. And it was just like he wasn't ever meeting resistance. Mm -hmm. So he just was like, okay, well, let's just keep going. 
Um, he beat the Austro-Sardinian Empire. Basically, that we can get to the ocean, boys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Go till you see blue sea. Mm-hmm. And like you say, he got so fucking close to Vienna. Like, whoa! How'd you get here? We had a lot of shit in between mm-hmm. where you started and where you He's ended like, Did up. Ya? Did you? Maybe we need to to have some peace talks. And just as fast as that all happened, it was just incredible how quick he went. The reason he was so successful at at this point, too, is when he went down to um, Italy, he did the exact same thing he did when he showed up to that um, whatever you know size of the troop he was um, commanding at Toulon. He saw that they were lacking shit. And as soon as he saw that in Italy, he started putting in requisitions back to Paris. My guys don't have fucking shoes. I need more cannons. I need more ammunition. And then started, when they didn't answer, did the same thing. He started trying to gather shit himself. He did get sent some stuff, but he was basically preparing these troops to be able to fight to the best of their ability. Well, when he showed up to the Army of Italy, and it was just called the Army of Italy because it was France's army in Italy. Yeah, anytime you hear, say, like, the Army of the Alps or the Army of Germany, we're referring to the French army that's stationed there. The arm of the army. Yes. So when he shows up to this Army of Italy, they haven't been moving a whole lot. They haven't been doing a lot of shit. They're kind of complacent. Hardly any fighting. They got really, like, stationary and complacent. And once he realized, like, I got to boost some morale, what can we do? Well, if we just march on and fight and win, like a loss at this point is going to crush us, but a win is going to shoot us completely up. So when he first showed up down there, he's 26 years old. He's given the command of the army of Italy at 26. He comes in and some of the generals that are serving under him are like twice his age and have as much battle experience for or war experience as he is old. So 26 years. He doesn't come in and act like he knows everything. He meets all of his generals finds out what they're in charge of, what their specialties are. And in a couple instances, with all of them in the room, he'll sit down with the guy and just start pestering them with questions. And there's an account of one of the guys watching him. He's like, he questioned him. He repeated his questions. They were simple questions that anybody who had been in war for a number of years who should have been in position should know. But weirdly enough, he was not shy about showing what he didn't know and wanted us to know that he was learning and that he would know it. And he's like, I should have not respected the man, and I should have been worried about his command, but it made me respect him more than I thought I ever could. He showed almost like the human element of He's like, I know I don't know this, but when I do know this, I'll be able to use all your skills together for the good. I'm going to be commander regardless. You're not getting your command back, so you might as well teach me so you don't die. And I think that kind of... Um, self-awareness is also what would really ingratiate him to, to the people that were loyal to him. So him blowing through Rivoli, just like he did um, in 1794, when he did it in Vienna, basically. Um, after Rivoli, the Austrians were like, hey, peace? And this, I've never heard a more useless term in my entire life than a peace treaty. Yeah. Like the shit just, it was like so many of them in this and none of them mean shit. No, no. And they really didn't. And Napoleon's the actual like reason that peace treaties and them coming together is like a whole conglomerate. It's basically why this happened. Yes. was solely because Napoleon just, he would get, he was a sneaky little rascal that would get out and cause trouble. So one of the reasons, or probably one of the main reasons he was so successful early on from a military standpoint is that he pretty much rewrote how like troops were going to move and how war was going to be fought. 
So most of the time with traditional warfare with all these other countries, you would have huge groups of soldiers. You would take those huge groups and to supply those troops, you would have to have supply trains, wagon trains, all this kind of support. And it would really slow down because you could only move as fast as the slowest portions of your military and you couldn't outrun your supplies. Napoleon adopted and wanted an army to be self-sufficient and live off the land. So they were able to travel lighter. They were still having to go and take all the artillery and cannons, but they had horses and trailers to do all that kind of stuff. As far but, as food goes, as far as rations, anything like so that. He, so he was able to outposition all of these larger armies to get into advantageous positions. And that's why he was able to, in most cases, beat these larger forces with smaller forces. He was just able to outmaneuver. He was more outmaneuver. He was more flexible. And when it comes to fighting like this, where you're trying to fight with like tens of thousands of troops, being nimble and flexible and being able to route one way and shift another, that's what, you know, leads to victory. Well, in his whole early thought process, it just, it makes so goddamn much sense. And we talked about this, I swear, in like every war that we've ever talked about. But the fighting styles of the day were that of like, you would have a right flank and a left flank. And then you would kind of have everybody sitting back in the middle. And you would have an even number on both sides so you could kind of figure out how to get around it. Napoleon's idea was... Uh, pitch, pitched battles. Yeah. Like when you're just facing yep. off against each other and you try to analyze the enemy's weakness. Are they weaker on the left flank or the right flank? Okay, we're going to try to flank them by sending our armies around and, you know, get them from the sides. That was like the traditional uh-huh. warfare. And to Napoleon's credit of not having very many troops, he saw that idea as pretty stupid because he was going to he was outnumbered in so many of mm-hmm. these battles. So his plan was like, well, why don't I just load up the right flank... We go and kick the shit out of everybody on the right flank. Then as the left flank advances towards us in the fighting, we're just going to turn around and smoke them. Like, we're going we're gonna to cut off an arm, and then when the other hand comes over to get us, we're just going to crush that hand. He That was something he used over and over again. So, like, these other armies would approach, and they'd be like, we're going to split our forces. You're going to go left. You're going to go right. And we're going to envelop these guys and then crush them from the side. And Napoleon would basically just be like, okay, I'm faster than you. So before you guys can even get into position... I'm just going to turn all my guys to the right. I'll outnumber you because you just split your forces. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I'm done, your other guys that aren't going to know what the fuck is going on, I'm going to turn back the other direction and meet them and still outnumber them. Uh, it's just such a brilliant strategy. It's so, But it's so it, simple to yes, go, like, how exactly. did other tacticians... It's so basic. Because they didn't have the mobility. It may have been thought about, but, like, we can't move guys as fast. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, what happens if they can get around us? I think the flanking system was to stop them from getting around to getting home well and the other thing too is when napoleon he's not just like a great tactician this is when he starts to become kind of a politician because these areas after he signs this treaty and he starts kind of heading back when he goes through italy he's not just like okay i'm taking out the army i'm taking out you guys you know everyone go about your day he's essentially like rewriting like legislature and putting certain people into like positions of control and then like rewriting laws and how things are going to operate as he moves through these places. And as he moves through them, he's like, I'm here to liberate you. Well, and that's just the political side of it. But when I was talking about him being like a human version of SimCity, he would show up to these places and get down to like coordinating trash collection in these towns. Traffic signals and roads. He's like, you guys should have roads here. Like he showed up, he's like, I'm here to take you over. I liberated you. Everything. He probably didn't say take over. He's like, here to liberate you. Um, you we're going to build these things called roads. Yeah. We're going to have people come you around. You've got to imagine trash. they're like being in Paris 
like he was in everything, that stuff being such a civilized place at that point and such a developed place, he had to just be like, those might have seemed like crazy suggestions to these people. He was like, no, we have these all the time. You should have street lights. They're like, what the fuck are street lights? It's like, you know, when it's dark, you can walk down the street. And he's like, what? Yeah, so one horse doesn't T-bone another horse mm-hmm. coming down the, the freeway here. You're riding horses in here? <laughs> So this is the 1700s though. They were it's true. far from anything else. So at this point man, he's a fucking celebrity in France. And do you have anything else before he comes back to France? No. Uh before we head down to Egypt, um we need to take a bathroom break. Real All right. Quick. Sounds good man. All right. While we take a break from class and uh, take care of some business, you can also take care of some business. If you don't follow us on Instagram or Twitter already, our Instagram handle is historically high pod. That's historically high pod, and our Twitter is historically high. That's historically hi. All right, and back to our show. All right, we're back. All right, so he ends up coming back to France. He's a fucking rock star. Everybody loves him. You know who doesn't love him? The Directory. <laughs> people the, that put him in charge. The people that did this. They don't like how much favor he's getting, like, in the eyes of the public. He, they know that he has the loyalty of at least a faction of the military. And so they're like, hey, um, is there anything else you want to do? Can we send you somewhere? I don't know if he brings it up or if they bring it up, but he's like, you know what? I really am obsessed. Like, I got such a hard-on for Caesar and Alexander. What did they both do? They went and conquered Egypt. I think I should conquer Egypt for France. And they're like, Cool. Well, it, part of the reason why, too, was because so much of that area, this is Egypt and this is Alexandria, so far out of antiquity. Like, this is after the uh, tower, the lighthouse, lighthouse fell. Lighthouse yeah. So, this is, they're completely taken over. And I want to say um, the Islamic State mm-hmm. is down there and they're kind of running some yeah, things. Yeah, he's running like this Syrian and every, Syria and everything like that, yeah. Part of it, too, I believe... Um, was just the fact that they knew so much about all of the artifacts and everything that were there that they wanted to bring them back. Because little known before this, um, the Louvre that's mm-hmm. in France now mm-hmm. was actually the, uh, like, De la Napoleone Louvre. That's right, because the entire time he's going through Italy, the entire time, he's just sending shit back. He is raiding everything and sending uh-huh. all the art back from Italy. And so much of it, that the Louvre, before it was the Louvre, like he said, it's fucking named after Napoleon because he provided so much to it. And it was just like all <clears> the <throat> spoils that he collected, he was sending he, back. He would always bring like archaeologists and art, like art people that knew about art on his, like with his military, so they could identify stuff to take back. So when he went to Egypt, first he ends up going south of France, takes his men over there. I forget, was it 40,000 he took, something like that? Uh, yeah, that number sounds close. So he takes roughly 40,000 and sets off on like 400 ships. At the time, it was one of the largest armadas that have ever been, you know, collected. Sails across, uh, makes a stop in Malta in six days, takes over Malta for France, installs a new government, writes a new constitution, helps them with, like he was saying, roads mm-hmm. and shit and everything. And then he's like, okay, cool. Uh, I got something else to do. And then keeps sailing for Egypt. They are able to land at Alexandria, right? Yeah. Okay. And uh, go listen to the Alexandria episode if you're not familiar with it. Part of just everything that he was doing, and I think part of the reason why the uh, directory really started to seem as an adversary was 
because of things like we're talking about, like all these paintings and everything, everything that was held in Napoleon's Louvre was just like, it was, he was bringing shit back that people were going and seeing and like appreciating. Yeah. The other thing that he was doing was in these towns, he was setting up like newspapers and he would set up one for like the locals and then one that would be sent back to France. Mm -hmm. And again, he was like the editor of these newspapers. So he could write whatever he wanted about himself. Like his celebrity status. If you look at people that really hold sway, it's like, you know, when someone says they made, you know, someone has this much like social star power and this Mm -hmm. person has this much based on all their fucking social media and all that shit. Like this person's post impacts a hundred million people. This person who's actually in power and is making decision affects like two million people. It's that Napoleon thing where they're like, these guys are only seeing everything positive from Napoleon and anything that goes to shit around here is on the directory because we can't blame it on Napoleon. Yeah, and not to mention he's only sharing his W's. Everything is trumped up to the max. Probably not a good term to use right now. He who controls the narrative. He he made himself out to be just this superhuman thing in a way of, which I don't think he wasn't, but just like in these old school Hannibal, a guy that I dove too deep into because of Napoleon, Alexander Hannibal now. Yeah, yeah, Hannibal's getting one for sure. But these conquerors of the past, he's like the last conqueror, so he got to see everybody else's and kind of modeled his game Mm -hmm. after these first conquerors. That's true. He is really kind of the last. Yeah. And he's the last conqueror because of all the shit that he did where they're like, we they can't keep fighting with each other. Like, we can't keep doing this yeah. shit. <laughs> so he ends up going to Alexandria and he takes archaeologists and everything like that with him. But before they're able to start digging anything out, there's the Egyptians to deal with. So, and because they're in Egypt, that's why they're calling them Egyptians. But they're made up essentially of people from the Islamic State and all that kind of stuff. I can't remember what their exact the exact name of like the people in that area, like Malwadis or something, something like that. that. Sorry if that, if we got that wrong. Yeah. Bad. If it's an offensive term, I plead ignorance. So this is literally a first world army against now a third rate army, third, first rate, third rate. And not even, not even one. There's a whole rate between them. We're so far removed from Alexandria being the big, big deal in Egypt to Cairo being kind of like the central hub yeah. of everything that goes on down there. So they sweep into Alexandria, clean out Alexandria very quick. Did you know what the the like disparity was? Mm-mm. So like just taking over Alexandria, so you had 29,000 soldiers, 29 killed versus 2,000 Egyptians killed. That's it right. was literally bows and arrows and swords against rifles, or not rifles at that point, muskets. Sorry, there needs to be a distinction because that does come into play later muskets and artillery and cannons and shit. So it was a bloodbath. You see a hundred guys running at you with a hundred scimitars. They, like, said, okay, that, they said that that's out. how they charged in and they literally waited for them and hit them with grape shot and they just disappeared. <laughs> it, it, they just got mowed down. They did not, they didn't know what the fucking, I don't know if they didn't know what the fucking guns were. They didn't think they were going to work. So while they're digging down there, Napoleon's down there. He's in charge. They unearth. Do you know what they unearthed? Rosetta Stone. The fucking Rosetta Stone. They find this black stone. They're trying to dig away to find the foundations of an old Ottoman fort, I think, uh-huh. because they want to create a French fort and stronghold down yeah. there. They find this black granite, whatever the stone is made of, and on it they find the fucking three translations between, is it Greek? It's Egyptian's the final one, and then it's Greek and something like Sumerian or something I like that. I think it is Sumerian. I think it was Greek, Sumerian, and then down to and hieroglyphics. It'll, if you don't know about the fucking Rosetta Stone, 
It is how we were able to decipher fucking hieroglyphics in Egypt because it was basically a translation of the exact same sentence or everything. And you could tell what letters matched up to what because there were still people around that either spoke Sumerian or spoke Greek. And this was how they basically translated in. When we talk about Alexander, this is how kind of the gap was bridged Mm -hmm. between the Egyptians and the Greeks. So this is, of course, going to get sent back to the Louvre. Here's the deal, people. It is not in the Louvre. No. It is held someplace else because... It's in the British Museum of History, I think. So somewhere along the way, Alexandria has been taken over. They want to go capture Cairo, I think. So Napoleon starts heading toward Cairo. He leaves... I think he marches across land and he takes some stuff across water, but his fleet ends up going to anchor, like, kind of in the Nile Delta. And he marches his men into Cairo. There's a battle and everything... And they end up taking over Cairo. So Cairo is now in French possession. Again, very little French losses. It's it's just the, the disparity, man, the weapons that they're fighting with yeah. and everything. And I think also there was kind of after Alexandria, I think maybe some of the whoever was manning that for like the Syrians and everything or the I, I don't know what to refer to that during that time. I think it was just the Islamic State. The Islamic State. They probably pulled some people out, too. Well, while Napoleon is busy here, they're still technically, they are not on good terms with the British. After Toulon and everything, they're technically kind of in a state of warfare. So, while Napoleon isn't paying any attention, what's the dude's name? I know he didn't have a left hand or a left eye. Yeah, he had a, oh, he was a badass, though. He's like an admiral or something like that. Oh, Horatio Nelson. Nelson. Okay, Admiral Nelson. So Probably where the rum comes there from. There we go, baby. So he sneaks in, and did you hear the way he did it? Yeah, they skeletonized a couple of the boats, and they snuck them yeah. up between the French fleet and the harbor. Yeah, so there's the French fleet, and it was sitting a little bit off the coast where it could still be in water enough. Yeah. But, like... You couldn't get anything, and they had the coast protect them. They weren't worried about getting attacked from behind. They had all these ships, guns pointing all outward. His fleet was smaller, and what he did is he took, like, I think, like, a dozen or, like, maybe two dozen ships and lightened up as much as he possibly could and basically came down the coast and was able to squeeze a line of ships between the coast and where these guys thought yeah. it was too shallow got half of his ships in that way and then had his other ships move in to draw their fire from the front and then hit them from the back and just completely took out this French fleet. Like, completely decimated the entire French fleet in the Mediterranean, except for, I think, like, two Two. ships. Everything but two. So, and that's also going to somehow come into play here in in just a little bit either. So, Napoleon gets word of this and is like, fuck, I'm stuck in Egypt. So, if you know anything about geography, the only way to get back into France is to actually go farther east and then you got to go north go through syria and all that stuff go listen back at the um oh it hasn't dropped yet has it Uh uh-uh. okay there's going to be an episode about t.e lawrence lawrence of arabia yeah. coming out so this is going to play into kind of the geography of this but he has to he decides he's like yeah i think we can just march across the desert and uh, probably just go up through syria and take over a bunch of places and then i'll find my way back to i'll find a port and then we'll we'll get back to france so that's what he fucking does well, 
the only way that he was able to escape back, he ended up coming back to France by boat. But it was because the British had left the port and left it open enough to but where they could get... he still had to make it all the way yeah. around. Yeah, he had to get back up to where he, the boat could Yeah, it wasn't up. like Cairo. You had to go up through like the Syrian desert and then get up into where... It would have been like where... Not Jerusalem, Jordan, but like Jordan and everything was on the coast there. And then eventually he took over a bunch of cities and conquered them. And then he ran into one where I think he started was losing men to the desert and all that kind of shit because he's never fucking fought in the desert. So he doesn't, I think, know what he's doing, but he's still winning these victories because his tactics are so fucking sound, they're outweighing any of the disadvantage he has. Well, and he also shrunk down his, uh, the amount of soldiers that he That's was taking. That's right. He left, I think, like... I thought it was 30,000 down in, in Cairo. Yeah, it, down in Cairo. Okay. So he... He, he took 13,000 or 15,000 into the desert with him and was still winning these victories. Yeah, and... Any other, you know, general that would leave or any other leader of an army that would leave that many people behind to be captured and then taken prisoner, like you would be in trouble for doing that. Yes. But him showing back up to France, France he had, also abandons the guys that are there. Yeah. So not only the guys in Cairo, the British end up capturing all of them and the Rosetta Stone, which went back to the British Museum and has never left there, I don't believe. And that's why it's not in the Louvre. Napoleon found it. The British got it. So he abandons all the guys there. And then the guys that are surviving after they capture that last port town, I can't remember which one it was, the two surviving ships somehow make it. I don't know how the communication there happened. Uh, I don't get that. There would have had to have been runners, somebody on horseback, anything like that to get back to them. Yeah. And like, where were those ships hiding? Because the British were still probably like being like, uh, did any get away? Yeah. Well, it was just the two, but the blockaded weekend, they'd gone to do something else that had drawn their attention. So they actually probably went to Cairo and that's who probably took Cairo. Yeah. Um, so Napoleon ends up hopping one of these two ships and is like, Hey guys, um, I'll be back for you. And leaves, like, a good sizable portion of the guys that were with him and marched through the fucking desert there. And then takes off and makes it back to France. But guess what doesn't make it back to France? The information of what actually fucking happened. It's what Napoleon says happened. Well, it got back, but Napoleon beat it back. But he had also spun it to the point he's like, yeah, I conquered Alexandria. Yeah, I conquered Cairo. You guys didn't send more guys down there? As far as the the rest of the troops that were caught, Mm -hmm. some of them did make it back and said this was a bad deal. But he had already spun the narrative when he was there to make it sound like he was the great victor. So he ends up getting back and is even more fucking popular at this point. And who's not popular at this point is the directory. And so through some various schemings and back channel deals and backdoor handshakes. They end up throwing a coup and it kind of seems like Napoleon is, he's not like leading the coup. He's just kind of the one kind of there. He's like, I just want to make sure this like transition is like peaceful or something like that. I like, I don't know how he presents himself, but it makes it to where he comes out like a good guy in this. So, he has a, I believe it is one of his older brothers. His name is like Leon, Leon, something like that. And he's in the Senate or he's council the, or whatever. He's the lower chamber. Lower so chamber. there's a there's the directory and then there's the 500 that meet below mm-hmm. them. And then there's a lower chamber. So they end up moving everybody out of Paris because they're seeing revolution going on again and they're about to get kicked out anyway. Um, they go in and he 
Napoleon's basically like, you guys need to get out. This isn't going to work. You need to step down for all this to happen. Excuse me. So they leave to go disband and tried to give him the old, hey, you guys tried here and just tried to ask pat him out the door and be like, we're going to, we'll fix this. We'll take care of it. Hey, no shame. You tried. Well, he he didn't want like a bloody coup. He yeah. wanted to be able to take over as a peaceful as transition power. As seamlessly as possible yeah. with as much of his popularity intact. So what he did was they went out there. The 500 refused to disband. And their guards and everything that are stationed outside, but their guards that are still pro-Napoleon, yeah. they're just there to protect the directory mm-hmm. and the 500 and all that. Um, his younger brother gets up when they just finally can't decide. And I guess this guy was a shit slinger. Like I heard the expression that he would get in an argument if he was the only person in the room. Mm -hmm. He was that kind of a guy. He told them, he's like, this isn't going to work out for you guys. Like you just need to make this decision and step down. We need a new government structure. This isn't going to happen. They still say no. Napoleon breaks in with a bunch of his, soldiers Mm -hmm. and they all have knives on them bayonets they were using the bayonets bayonets on the rifles yeah and everybody goes whoa you said this was going to be peaceful you're in here to try to kill us and all the guards outside are like we're supposed to be protecting these guys Mm -hmm. but this is napoleon like what do we do here and as he comes up he walks up to his brother and his brother pulls a knife out on him Mm -hmm. and he holds it up to his throat this is all theatrics this has all been pre-planned this is just like trying to get the upper hand is this a work yeah, yes. This is a work? This is a work to 100% what's going on. And basically backs him down. Well, now that they've seen the threat of Napoleon and they know that there's really nothing else that's going to go on, they agree to step down and step back. And the new French government that they're supposed to be setting up um, is... It's it's, like, l- it's a triumvirate. It's, yeah, it's a, a tripod and they're called um, consulate. So there's the first consulate, consulate second consulate, it's, it's the, and the consul, third. it's the consulate, and they're the consuls. Oh, consul, that's right. And guess who gets to be the first consul? Yeah, turns out Napoleon uh, makes himself the first choice, gets to handpick the second two, then goes ahead and sort picks, of picks the two other guys that were kind of the leaders in the coup that represent different groups mm-hmm. and everything. He yeah. restructures the power yet again. And basically says, I'm going to be the primary consul. Uh-huh. You guys are going to be the secondaries, which they had he just starts gained. like rewriting the constitution yep. and just passing shit into law, like super quick. He's like, I should probably do this, but I should take care of this, but it's military. So that falls under me. He's basically assigning all the power to himself. And it's like, you guys can take this or you guys can take that. And then he throws the people a bone. He says, we're going to vote on this to make sure that everything is chosen by mm-hmm. you. Well, there might be a little bit of vote fixing that went on because I think they said initially they had like 1.5 million people that voted. And it was 99. Oh, well, somehow it turned out that 3 million people had voted in favor of Napoleon and it was only like a thousand people. So, yeah, it was like a 99. They said there were only a total of like 3 million eligible voters in France because so, and this isn't just all the people in France, but you had to be eligible to vote. A man. Yes. Like they said that a huge portion of the French population, like two thirds, couldn't speak proper French. Yeah, very and dumb. even fewer could actually write or understand even writing. So it's, yeah. So unless you can just put your handprint where so you want So there's a very it. select group of individuals <laughs> voting. But yeah, apparently like 99% of them voted for. Smoke the vote. vote. Biggest landslide Landslide. So... <clears throat> Everything like this goes down, and the rest of the world's going on around France sees this again, and they're like, well, we haven't gone to war with France in a little bit. And so <laughs> who comes back up that just got smoked? 
it's the Austrians again. And now it's the second coalition because yeah. they're with Britain because Austria, Britain hates France. So they're always like on board. They're like, I think honestly, Britain is always just putting out feelers. Be like, is anyone ready to fight France yet? <laughs> and finally, Austria is just like, we're ready again. He's like, great. Me and you, Austria, we're going this time. And very quick. And, he, and here's the thing. He's basically, so he's first consul of France. He's the most powerful man in France. He's like, all right, time to get the military going again. Doesn't stay in Paris to lead or assign anyone. He's like, I'm going. Hey, he just became, like you say, just became the ruler. And now the he's de facto like, ruler. He's in all but full name. Mm-hmm. I, I'm taking off. I'm out of here. We're going to fight again. So he's to get to the Ottoman, or sorry, to get to the Austrians, he has to get across the Alps. Well, the reason he has to get across the Alps is because while he was in his kerfuffle down in Egypt, the Austrians were like, hey, they're not in Italy anymore. Oh, they're, yeah, they they're fucking around down in Egypt. The... Let's go back. Let's reoccupy this land. All our fucking art's gone. <laughs> so they take the peninsula of Italy again. There's two ways to get into Italy. First way is by boat down just directly into them. Well, into three the... ways. Because there's that strip along okay, the yeah. coast in, fuck, what's it called? I forgot. Piedmont. Is that where it is? And it's where you can march an army. It, it would be the place that if you were going to stop an army coming into Italy, you know that they were coming that way, and you just put all your guys Very there. easily defensible. So it's a long, flat area between the coast and some mountains that you can march army down. It's the predictable place, and it's where all the defenses are. So it's not smart. Or you can go by boat. Second way, they just had their whole entire navy basically mm-hmm. destroyed not, in sack, not so that's not in there. Door number three. Door number three is marching through the Swiss Alps to come through the north, mm-hmm. which seems very cold, very inhospitable, and very tough. Here's here's okay. I'm going to ask you a question about this because that's the way they go. Yep. Do you think because he he read you know all of the like biographies and everything he could get his hands on, he was and that's I think something about certain people like this. They get obsessed with history and they want to recreate it, but in their own image. So he read everything about Hannibal, and again, we've already touched on how much he loves Caesar and Alexander. He almost saw himself as like a better version, a version that could surpass essentially what they did. He's like an amalgamation of them all. Exactly, and he always, and you can almost point to things that he does, he's like, that's his Hannibal phase. And so (laughs) Hannibal going over the Alps, he's like, guess what? We're crossing the Alps because they don't think we're going to cross the Alps, and they're going to be completely caught off guard. Well, and they show up in northern Italy, and there's just nobody there mm-hmm. to fight them. He catches so, them with their pants down. Yeah, it, there's nobody there, so they're like, okay, well, we need to get down to the peninsula. Let's just march. Let's mm-hmm. just go. So the big battle that happens in Italy is called, was it the Battle of Marengo? And the French have 24,000 troops, and the Austrians have 30,000. Where these countries, and this is going to come into play this entire time, <laughs> keep finding these fucking people to fight their armies is fucking insane. Like, the breeding programs that these countries are must be running is, is madness. Well, France had a conscription, so they... They were pulling from a lot of different places. Yeah, and when they would take over a place, they would start pulling And they've always had one of the higher populations, like, oh, yeah. in the world, just because of all the farmland shit. So... He divides his troops up after he was using a spy that he thought was working for him that was spying on the Austrians. That spy was actually working for the Austrians by giving Napoleon. Yeah, they flipped him. So he gave Napoleon some shitty information that said, hey, they're going to be splitting their forces 
and going one direction with the other. She's like, okay, well, I'll split my forces. Well, it turns out they were not going to split their forces. They were going to try to pull a Napoleon and keep their army together yep. and fight against half of Napoleon's forces when he split them and wipe them out. And uh, to their credit, I mean, they, they did really well. In the beginning, the Austrians absolutely beat the shit out of Napoleon. There's like one thing that Napoleon hated to do, and it was retreat. Yeah. He wasn't big on losing ground because he didn't... It, wars weren't really fought to total victory. They were fought till somebody retreated. So he didn't want to. It was pretty like he, seldom that like the entire yeah. army would get like. You're not getting completely wiped out. There's a there's a certain point <laughs> when a certain number of people have died in front of you uh-huh. that you think to yourself, "That's going to be me. I'm leaving." And everyone behind you has already got that same idea or has already taken off, and you go too. So you turn around to look behind you to see your forces, and everybody behind you is already going. You're like, "Okay, I probably, probably got to yeah. go too." Luckily, though, um, Napoleon had gotten word to the other forces that had split off mm-hmm. and said that they needed to come back. So as basically the Austrians are whooping the shit out of the French. Preoccupying their whole force. Yeah. Um, Napoleon's riding through to everybody in the French army. You got this. We're going to do this. We don't give up. Yeah. We don't lose. He's rallying the troops to the nth <laughs> degree. We can do it. <laughs> If we win this, we go back, we eat baguette. It's mm-hmm. going to be great. And they're doing it at this point too. They're doing it's not it's a controlled retreat. So they're getting a little bit of ground as they can kind of reposition, trying to kind of also pull the Austrians closer in toward them. So they're Well, they're often, trying to buy time for reinforcements. Exactly. And basically it was kind of like at the at the final moment, before all hope was lost and retreat was imminent, he sees like a plume of dust. On the horizon or like getting closer and it's from all the marching the other half and basically they come in behind them, not the Austrians, they come in behind Napoleon's forces and he gives this rousing speech about how they're going to, I can't remember. Oh, he's like, oh fuck, what did he say? God damn it. It was actually really cool. He's got some cool quotes. I know it was, oh, he looks back, he goes, we're done going back for the day. (laughs) And, like, that invigorated the troops that were already, like, tired. And then all of a sudden these fresh troops came in. And it was at, like, the same time that the Austrians tried to big, uh, attack a, big push, a yeah. big push. And they just got mowed down. And then immediately after that, Napoleon's forces counterattacked straight at him. And all of that l- ground that the Austrians had gained throughout, like, 12 hours of this fight, they lost it within an hour of getting pushed back. That was that was pretty much the the big engagement that that was the end of the, the second coalition. Yeah, he just he absolutely just ransacked him. As soon as the numbers changed a little bit, and it wasn't even like it was a big extra force, mm-hmm. but it was just the fact that it they doubled gr- the amount he split it in half. Yeah. But compared to the Austrian forces, they just had ground the Austrian forces down so mm-hmm. much that even a little surge from the French were just well, going to fresh them. troops too. Yeah. All of the Austrians were probably tired from having to go oh, and push yeah. against that. Well, and they're trying to take ground too. So it's not mm-hmm. only that they're moving their defensible positions, they're bringing up their cannons and everything. It's like, oh shit, we moved up too far. We can't go back that fast. And just it was a. Uh, an ass whooping. And at the point, I must add, because this is still incredible, at the point that he's made first console during this time frame, he's 30 years old. He's only fucking 30 so years young. old. He's basically the ruler of France and came from fucking like nothing from like an island France had barely taken over. So he's he's moving on up. 
Yeah, I don't know if he came from nothing, but he certainly like outshined his potential. A hundred percent. He yeah, he was he did so much extra. And so after they smoked the Austrians, he goes back to France and there's this very weird short window that started in March eighteen oh two that was called the Treaty of Amiens. And Amiens. it was uh, Amiens. Amiens. I again my French is rusty. I think it's have you noticed all the treaties are named after like the nearest town? That's uh-huh. how just it wasn't it weren't clever names or no. flowery. It was just like we signed this one near this guy's house. I mean we also still do that. There's like the Treaty of Versailles that was That's in true. Versailles. But Versailles kind of is nice. Yeah. It's, it's not like some just like village down the They chose a better place to sign. Yeah, a little bit. So but this it, it was weird because it brought temporary peace to Europe and not only between like warring nations, between like smaller fights that were going on just for like land grabs and power within I know I, th- I think all these other countries saw what they did to Austria and they realized that who was in charge now and everything they were like l- l- hey everybody <laughs> let's pump the brakes let's be cool let's maybe just everyone go back to their homes and think about this let's everybody take a breath let's you know let's reconvene mm-hmm. and after this because of this can you imagine you basically just brought peace to to Europe and so the public actually votes to make Napoleon first consul for life. So he he's not leaving that position. Well, <laughs> the other reason that he did that was because um, when he got back to France, there were a lot of people that were still pro-royal, and they started making assassination attempts on him. Well, that's why he does the emperor thing. Yeah, that's why, why he changes mm-hmm. it. So once he becomes the permanent console they start taking some pot shots they're trying to get him out of power that not all the french people are on board with what no. he's doing and what he's got going again the on. royal family is still alive in britain at this point so there is someone to place along the royal lineage on lineage on the french throne and yeah. you have these royalists that are still like this this isn't right we've always had the royal family and they're i don't know well and part of him becoming the emperor meant that if he was ever assassinated, mm-hmm. it would just be another person in his family taking the throne. So it was like they couldn't ever oust that's exactly. the Napoleon so it's not, family. That's why he did that. Yeah, so he... And that, I mean, that makes sense for an insurance oh, yeah. policy. So it's not like... So if we kill you while you're the consul, then it's just going to be maybe the second consul that moves up. But if it's automatically, and that person might be semi-qualified, mm-hmm. but if it's just immediately one of your family that hasn't had to do this or has no interest in doing it, it would be shitty. Yeah, we'd rather we'd rather do it that way. Or we, we're rather not going to kill you because just killing you would put an asshole in charge. So like the assassination it, attempts like really uh-huh. dialed back after... I want to go back to that, but there's something he did before he even became emperor. Okay. That's, that's pretty ballsy, man. The thing so, that he did after, it's probably my favorite thing that he did. The purchase? No, okay. the coronation. Okay, yes. So in 1803, after the treaty, so Europe is at peace. So he's like, I'm going to focus on my my outer holdings. I know what you're doing here, and I love this. Yes. So he starts looking around at all like the French colonies and everything, and he's like, fuck, man, we're kind of cash poor right now because of all these wars. <laughs> uh-huh. We're going to need some scratch. So he looks across the pond, and he's like, I got this big old piece of land in the U- United States. He's like, let's see if they'll buy it. So he transacts with us the Louisiana Purchase. That happens. Napoleon is the one that does that. From what, Louisiana to South Dakota? It doubled the size of the United States in one purchase like that. $15 million 
it was less than three cents an acre. He needed that money. And it was, TJ was a hell of a, a deal maker to get that pulled oh, off. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was, wasn't he like the French, was he the president at that time or was he the, the, the French ambassador? I think he might have been the ambassador. I don't think he was the president quite Wheeling yet. Wheeling and dealing, baby. But yes, oh, oh, the coronation. Yeah. So in 1804, this is when the coronation happens. December 2nd, 1804. He makes the Pope officiate it at Notre Dame. <laughs> he brings in Pope Pius, at, like you say, at Notre Dame, and it's just this big pomp and circumstance. You have everything going on. And normally, during a coronation, a king is crowned by either the Pope or... The, the previous king. Yes. Someone in a position that it's like the transferring of the royal lineage mm-hmm. or officiated by somebody. And you would think, with Pope Pius being there, yeah, big that's deal. exactly what is going on here. But you'd be wrong. Napoleon goes ahead and gives him a little hip thrust to get him out of the way, walks up, grabs the crown, lifts it high above his head, and crowns himself. Which is the most badass thing that you can do. Out of the way, out of the way, Padre. <laughs> <laughs> Just raising his like, yes. But yeah, so the reason he does that, because basically he's harder to kill as a royal. Yeah. I, and he just, I mean, the whole idea of him just not giving a shit about the church, not giving a shit about anything else that's gone on. This was something that France themselves had just fought against to try to get rid of a monarchy. And now they're in favor of an emperor instead of a monarchy. Like it's, it's the same mm-hmm. thing under a different name. Yeah. And it should be known at this time. He doesn't have a kid. No? So the person that would be next in line would be like his brother. And I'm not sure how popular his brother is. Definitely not as popular as Napoleon. So that's the... End of 1804. Big year. Big year for Napoleon. Yeah, and uh, it doesn't get any more peaceful after that. In fact, it goes the opposite way. No, nope, so we, we can't have peace in Europe. We've had one. We've had two. What's next? It's the third coalition. This one is made up of all the, all the greatest hits. Britain, Austria... Now you're getting Sweden in there. Yeah, weird that Sweden finally was like, hey, maybe we need to get in on this. Yeah, and guess who's coming to the table now? It's Russia. So I'm trying to think. So Napoleon at this point, because the only one that didn't sign the Treaty of Amiens was Britain, right? Uh So he was like, I got to – he starts kind of getting in this – during this time, he's restructuring a lot of like French laws and rules and everything. He's reestablishing. He turns it back into the normal week. Yeah. And yep. he reinstates Christmas. So he changes that and people love it. One thing he's doing is he's like, I'm doing a really good job here. <laughs> like everything's running so smooth. Everyone should do it like I'm doing it. And so he starts basically kind of under the threat of military reprisal having these countries that are like his sister nations or what do you call them, his friendly nations mm. or whatever, start to be like, you guys need to do things the Napoleon way. And at a certain point, people don't want to be told what to do or how to run their shit. Well, and not to mention, we're not talking about um, original border France at this point. We're talking about a much larger area in Europe that these treaties still assured France to have. So they were still in control of the parts of Italy that they had taken over. Mm -hmm. Um, Their influence was spreading. And of course, right next to France, you're going to have Southern Germany. 
And southern Germany It is, wasn't called Germany at that time. What it, was it? it? I think it Prussia. was... Prussia. Yeah. Prussia. Was it Prussia? It I thought Prussia. Prussia was up closer to Russia. Someone said Prussia was what would be modern-day Germany. Okay. Agreed at 80%. Yeah, yeah, somewhere somewhere down there. What is now southern Germany? Um, the greatest punching bag that Napoleon ever faced, the Austrians, show up in southern Germany. And Napoleon goes on something called the Ulm Campaign... And the Ulm campaign can only really be called a success of, like, the highest stature because they had captured 60,000 Austrian troops in southern Germany, and they only lost 2,000 French casualties. Mm -hmm. That was all it took to gain 60,000 people. Oh, yeah. What happened? Uh, He went around them. They were so fast. He went around them and cut their supply lines and food lines off and then just basically told them, like, you guys, they didn't even battle. Like, it was a small (laughs) skirmish. And then he was like... You realize you guys can't, like, get reinforcements or shit, and the guy's like, ooh, yeah, I probably should surrender. So the Austrian always seems like the flat tire in any coalition. Every single time, it seems like they're the guys that get duped first. Fortunately, um, they're everybody... In, they're so in for it, though. Yeah. Like, Every... you, guys, you guys starting coalition again? <laughs> did, did you guys say coalition? Well, it, after that kind of happened, I think the Russians are like, whew. This is probably something that we don't really want to deal with. And they also had um, something called the Holy Romans that were also involved in Austria. They were kind of like the the, Holy Roman Empire. And so everybody was kind of backing away after the Austrians got taken. Like, hey, maybe we don't want to engage. Britain's like, eh, maybe this isn't a great idea. Russia's like, eh, let's not do this. You know the reason why it was so quick and why he was able to do that so quickly during that campaign? So... Prior to the coalition getting together, he was like, I'm going to just have to invade England or Britain. Yeah. That's, and so yes. he was training his men and marshalling men on like the French coast, like the North French coast, building barges, building ships, all this kind of stuff. And then basically, I don't know if Britain just like convinced the other ones to start this because they knew what was going to happen. But basically was like, hey, Austria, you want to start some shit again? They're like, yeah, 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 yeah. He's like, let's get Sweden and Russia in on this. And so the armies that kind of got together first were the Austrian army and mm-hmm. then they were waiting for like the Russian, I think Russian army to come down. And so Napoleon was like, well, I guess I can't invade England anymore. Now that these guys are attacking me. So he had like 200,000 troops already kind of marshaled and ready to go. And he's like, I'm just going to turn you guys to this direction. We're just going to march down and fucking wipe the floor with these guys. Well, and it was for the better too, because Napoleon's grand idea is the same grand idea that we've seen time and time again he needed to navigate the English Channel. And because he knew if he could get even a foothold in England, mm-hmm. they were going to smoke him. Because yeah. England was like... It didn't have a land army. That yeah, was they the were whole point. It was the Navy. It was all Navy. So they had to get across the English Channel. And at one point, Napoleon had convinced himself and said that he only needed six hours on the English Channel. He needed six hours of a clear English Channel. Yeah, to get through and to win, which totally mm-hmm. wasn't true at that point. No. And not only that... How are you going to get six hours on the fucking English Channel? They know that you're building up. They can. Yes. They, they know what's going on on your they side. They have ships of it. and eyeballs. God damn yep. it. So it was really like a benefit that the Austrians started to push up that way because he would have got smoked had he tried to come across the oh, English yeah. Channel. Here's the other thing too: is that at this time he develops, and there's so many things that get carried over into our society or even militaries today. He invents, invents these things called corps, C O R P S, and what he basically does is how warfare usually worked was you would have your infantry, yeah. then you would have your cavalry, then you would have your artillery, almost moving as three separate units. He divided them up 
to where each unit had a sufficient number of both of all three infantry, cavalry, and artillery that they could be a self-supporting army and fight a battle for a day and be sufficient while the other ones came to reinforce it. So they would run in and be able to be maneuverable and attack these armies that were only made up of infantry or cavalry and everything. So that's why they were able to move through on that Ulm campaign so quickly, because if he adopted a new another new method of warfare. Well, he... I believe this next thing that we're about to talk about, the Battle of Austerlitz, might be the greatest thing that he ever did, like, militarily. I, I think they say that it's the most... I know that yeah. we'll talk about Lodi coming up, because I think that's coming up in the 5th Coalition, or maybe the 4th Coalition, something like that. Mm-hmm. But this Battle of Austerlitz was the ultimate bait and switch on the Russians that I think probably we've ever read about. And he's only getting stronger going through these campaigns, too, because as he captures these places, when he beats Austria... He ends up capturing like 5,000 cannons and 100,000 muskets. So he's just strengthening his forces for all this shit. Anybody that didn't have a gun before they caught the Austrians had two guns after they caught the Austrians. So Austerlitz is basically Napoleon against what they considered an allied army. And I can't remember, it's Russians and someone else, or is it the rest of the Austrians and the Prussians? I I don't think the Prussians were in on it quite yet because the Prussians were the fourth coalition. This is still three. I think this is uh, the Anglo-Swedes that they were talking about and the Russians. Okay. So it's outside this place called Austerlitz, and there's this strategic position called the Pratzen Heights. It's basically like this flat-top hill that overlooks this entire area. Much like he did with the hills in Toulon. Yes, and Except Napoleon, so much better. I know, again, being such like a strategic genius, he's like, I know I have to get here before them. I know this is going to be the area. And they, the whole thing is too, they don't want to fight him No, because they know he's winning so much. So it's almost like a token kind of like show of force. So he gets to the, um, what was it called? The Protzen Heights first. He sets up his artillery, gets set up for a battle And the other armies are out of range and everything like that. He sees them. And after like a few days, he comes with like some type of like discussion. He's like, can we discuss terms? He's like, I don't, I'm not feeling too good about this anymore. Just honey dicks them into thinking that he's actually scared. He's like, Like, come. The, the guy that hasn't lost really anything yet Mm -hmm. is coming to the table. Like he's concerned. He's like, come back to my tent guys. Let's, let's hash this thing out. I don't really want to be here. You guys are kind of, you got, you got a lot of guys and goes so far as to almost leave out like breadcrumbs and clues and papers that suggest he's moving positions <laughs> yeah, off dude. of the high ground to like retreat. <laughs> he created fake military yes. documents to try to so like, Hey guys, don't look at my table over exactly. there. So they're skeptical about it. And they're like, this has got to be a trap. And then they see him move his entire military off of this. And as soon as that happens, they're like, they get their asses up there and they set a position and they see, Napoleon has set up position like on three sides of the heights, kind of. Uh huh. And he purposely leaves his right flank very sparse, very sparse and weak. They're made up of his most like hardened troops so they can last as long as possible. But this is part of his plan. So he basically honey dicks yeah. these Russians and the Allies. Into basically, they're like, look at that fucking right flank, man. We got to go after that right flank, man. Well, the other thing about this was this wasn't just like military intelligence. This was like weather intelligence. Like the ter- he knew the terrain and everything yeah. like that. 
But he, he also knew that in the mornings there was always a heavy fog that laid below this a mist these cliffs. covered yeah. the battlefield. So, and not only was there a mist, it was rolling hills a little bit. Uh-huh. So there was pockets that you really couldn't see. And so come morning, there's a mist. But there's that right flank looking tender and juicy. So the Russians are like, fucking send it. And send like the bulk of their forces against this. And again, it's there's not as many guys on this, but they're really battle-hardened. So they're holding their own against this larger they're force. They're built to, to last. They're going to hold the line until the it, mist clears. It, you know what it reminds me of? You know those machines that have the, like, you see them in Vegas. They go back and forth. They hold the big tower of chips. And you can put a quarter in. It tries to push it forward yeah. a little bit. I get caught in some of those on... Uh, Social media, there oh, yeah. will be like the... Be like, fall, you motherfucker. Where they're clean, yes. And yep. I see the Russian commander up there looking at his soldiers. He's like, I need to send just a little bit more down and this thing's going to collapse. <laughs> so he sends down like another attack from more forces. And as these guys are going down... The, the sun's s- coming up. The sun's coming up and it burns away the mist to uncover <laughs> How many soldiers was it? Uh, it was like tens of thousands. It was the majority I think they said of, 17, 15 to 17 or something. It? Yeah. The majority of the troops were hidden below the mist. And they had already gone too far. The Russians had already gone too far. So basically they sandwiched them and then charged up and took, retook over the heights. And then as they retook over the heights, they used the artillery to then fire down on the Russians. <laughs> Which, after you see that in your Great Britain, um, your England, I guess, at that point, because they hadn't really become Great Britain yet, you hear about that. I'm sure the Prussians got news. They're like, holy shit, that was a really crazy attack method. What? We don't want much to do with Mm-mm. these guys. Like, this guy's crazy like a fox. He hit him where? <laughs> it, like, missed like fog? Yeah. He tricked them off of the high ground somehow. Did what? he... Bring the fog with him? <laughs> like, how the fuck did he do that? So again, as we've done two other times, three other times, four other times at this point, we go peace treaty. And the Is peace, that the Treaty of Tilsit? I, I believe, yeah. And that was after he beat the Russians at the Battle of Friedland. So that was after Austerlitz. <laughs> that was another battle during this campaign. And just kind of a a look back into um, and that was the fourth coalition. That was the third. The fourth is when Prussia gets involved. Is it? Yeah. Okay. So, just sort of a look back at what's going on in Napoleon's personal life Um, when he was in Italy, the with the army of Italy. He wrote back to Josephine. He said, "Hey, come join me in Italy." She's like, "Can't. uh, I'm pregnant." I'm pregnant with your child. And he's like, sweet. that goddamn pregnancy. This is awesome. I finally have an heir. Only issue was, Josephine wasn't pregnant. She was banging this lieutenant that was supposed to be guarding her. This horse riding, eye patch wearing, just freaking handsome motherfucker. Yep. So to to move that timeline up, um, she has written a letter right around this time and sent it to Napoleon saying, hey, uh, I just bought this big house with all your money. Oh, yeah, and guess what? The guy that I'm banging is moving in. Mm -hmm. So just completely... Just ruining... Like, his letter goes back and he's like, my dear... What is her name again? Josephine. My dearest Josephine, my heart has been pierced by a thousand daggers. But then he never... It's oh, That's all it is. And he just, like, maintains... He's like, okay, so I guess we're still married and you're just banging this dude? Uh, and then again, he also... Um, when she tried oh, to Oh, he break starts banging off, people, too. Well, 
he did do that, but he um, sent word back to have her dog poisoned and killed. Oh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So passive aggressive move to have the yeah. dog killed. Very and odd. And then he starts, as soon as he becomes emperor, too, there's at a certain point, this might take place a little bit before emperor, when he's still in the Italian campaign or whatnot. But then as soon as he becomes emperor, he's like, I'm going to annul this thing. And he starts kind of like mulling over. He doesn't go straight forward, but he's like, I could probably try to get out of this. That was right around the uh, the fifth coalition. And okay. I say fifth because it doesn't just stop at three. We go into four where the Prussians get involved. Um, we're not trying to speed through these, but it really just. There's a lot of coalitions. Yeah, people, a lot of coalitions. And there's some through. big shit that happens. And we're trying to get you out of here. We're trying to get you out of class on time. Yep. So the War of the Fourth Coalition, um, Prussia enters the battle finally. And it's um, called the coalition, and here's the deal. It might only be the Prussians fighting him, but Brit- Britain's always in for a coalition. So when they form a coalition, Britain's like, yeah, just sign us up for this one. Yeah, and we'll, Russia... will keep controlling the waters. They're just... That's what they're doing, kind of, is they're just, like, moving their ships around and being like, where do you need us to have our ships? Like, I don't know. We're on land. They're like... Let us know if you need our ships. But <laughs> we're going to be in back protecting us. We're in this coalition. Yeah, give us a call. Uh, Russia, obviously not happy. I think at this point, this is Tsar Alexander. Tis, uh, again, I, tis, it's Zar. T. It's just Tsar. Oh, okay. But I thought, Zar, so what's C-Z-A-R? Both. Is that just from a different country? Uh, a different portion of Russia, I think. Okay. So Tsar Alexander <laughs> gets back in with the Prussians this time. Um, doesn't go well in 1806. They handled the Prussians pretty fucking easy. Like it was very, very quickly. It's business as usual. Yeah. Yeah. And then France scored another massive victory on the 14th of June, um, against Russia. And that was the battle of, uh, Ferdinand. Friedland. Friedland. Okay. Okay. That's the one I was talking about. He beat him. Yeah. Um, Tsar Alexander's like, Hey man, why are we still fighting? (laughs) Right? So... He's like, let's talk about this. So Napoleon's like, yeah, let's let's have a conversation. And he's like, you know, the halfway point what divides Russia and the French territories is this river. Why don't we meet at the halfway mm-hmm. point? He builds this big fucking raft. And I'm not talking like Tom Sawyer. Like a barge. A, a giant barge that's like got a structure on it and everything. So they hang out on this barge for like a couple days while like all their commanders and everything like that are all partying together, there was like word of an orgy that might have taken yeah. place during this. And apparently Alexander Napoleon just they like to fuck together. They're not uh, with each other. Well not each other. You don't I, know. You know what? A lot of holes. What, what, whatever. Something might have slipped <clears> in. You don't know. But they apparently really get on together and like during their last interaction, Tsar tells him, and this is I think what solidifies he goes, you know, I hate the English too. Yep. And that's sort of their common ground that they find. Um, but after that treaty is signed in the fourth coalition. That is called the Treaty of Tilsit. Okay. Because it was this, the Tilsit closest River. town to the place was Tilsit. Okay. Um, after that, I think France just had had enough of Britain shit. And Britain was really, or England was really starting to push on like, they had gone down. They had captured part of Ireland. Like they were creating basically mm-hmm. the, what am I thinking of the um, United Kingdom? United Kingdom, yes. And <laughs> as the United Kingdom's happening, um, they basically start saying, "Well, we need to figure out how to cut things off with France." France is saying, "We need to figure out how to cut supply lines." So uh, basically, the UK can't keep making money off of anything. Mm-hmm. 
So they come up with this deal called the Continental Deal, and that's basically cutting off any kind of exports coming from England into Europe, which is supposed to hamper, and I think by all accounts it did hamper the English Mm -hmm. economy a little bit, but not a lot. Basically, you're trying to cut off their, and that shows like another degree to his like strategy. He's like, I can't beat them militarily right now. He's like, I don't think that'll work. Let me try something different. I'm just going to try to starve them from an economic perspective. If no one can buy any of their stuff, then they won't have money to buy anybody else's stuff. And I don't know if that included with the allies for France. Did they also tell the allies not to trade? It was as well. everybody in France because they actually ran a campaign to try to basically the entire coastline of Europe. They were trying to capture all those ports That's so they right. could make stop them the non, import. Non-usable for the yep. British. So it, it all was working fairly well. They got everybody pretty well on board until it came down to Portugal and Spain. A lot of coastline there. Yeah, tons of coastline to cover. I want to say it was something like 120,000 miles yeah. of coastline that they had to cover. So... Because of this, and they're not really enforcing this rule, they're allowing certain British goods to come in uh, using their ports and everything. Mainly into Spain and into Portugal, and then anywhere that's connected there, that train of exports is making its way into these other countries. So initially, Napoleon's like, I'm not going over there yet myself. He sends his guys over there. They can't get the job done. So eventually, after a couple losses, actually, Napoleon's like, fuck this shit. I can't have this on my record. He grabs the Grand Army and he heads over and he kind of he just sorts shit out, and he ends up putting on the like the Spanish throne his like brother or his cousin or something. It was his brother. Okay, so his brother was not pumped about it either. His brother was not happy to be there. He knew kind of how are you not fucking happy? You just been crowned the ruler of Spain. Like I know that's a weird place for you, but just like. Come on, man. Well, you're also like a proxy of your brother's great ideas. Who cares? You can do whatever the yeah. fuck you want. Well, you know that he also just put a a, uh, a sight on your forehead because you're going to be the one that tries to be overthrown by Great Britain. Um, Portugal. Just roll with it, baby. Yeah, I, I get that. Portugal and Spain kind of go back and forth as far as they're fighting for their independence. They're also being aided by the English, so they're overthrowing. It's just a mess. It's like the almost like the Achilles heel of what's going on wrong in France is trying to get a hold of Spain and Portugal to try to keep this continental blockade up. Well, guess what? When Napoleon's busy over in Spain and Portugal, guess who's back? Back again. <laughs> Austria's back for the fifth coalition. Not one, not two, not three, not four, five coalitions. And guess what? It's a coalition again because Austria and Britain are in it together. Yep. <laughs> back to their old tricks. So with that, um, they end up just beating Austria like a drum, don't again, they? Again, yeah. Just redhead stepchild for like the umpteenth time. It's Austria was like practice for them. Like they, they were, it was like a college team coming up and playing a professional team. It felt like every single time until the end and they just got smoked again. And that's why it was over so quickly because Napoleon just sacked through the Austrians again. I'm sure the British probably weren't too pumped to get involved. All coalitions were created equal. No, no. So fifth, very quickly over. All right. I do have to go pee, and then we're going to round this thing out. All right. And now we reach our final coalition. Yeah. 
Uh, sort of, in a way, because there's one big coalition at the end that sort of puts an end to everything. So between the fifth and sixth coalition, um, he's had enough of Josephine. I, I don't know really what pushed him over the edge besides she was getting older and she was coming out of her childbearing years and he had had children up to this point, but it was all with mistresses. So it wasn't like an official heir apparent because it wasn't a part of the Royal family technically, because it wasn't with a queen. He also was going to try to do it to create political ties. Yeah. And uh, Josephine wasn't going to give him any benefit of that either. Well, and going through everything, he had installed other family members in like other kingdoms. So many fucking places. Yeah. This is where the incestuous nature of like monarchies and shit happened. There were like, there were Bonaparte's in like major, like there was one in Spain at that point. I think there was one in Holland. Holland, Italy. Yeah. At some point in Italy. And then like Florence, and I know Florence is in Italy, but it has a ruler too, but Mm -hmm. a a shit ton of them. So um, his plan was to annul his marriage with Josephine. Uh, Unfortunately, he had set up a rule that any woman over the age of 40, the husband wasn't allowed to divorce her Mm -hmm. or get rid of her. I don't know if that was like... He's the emperor. Yeah, so he goes ahead and rewrites the rules. Erased the rule Uh and wrote in, he's like, unless you're Napoleon. So he annuls his marriage with Josephine. By all accounts, he really still kind of like cared about her mm-hmm. because he set her up really well. And they would like after still they were divorced. Yeah he, gave, yeah, he gave her money. He let her keep the palace, mm-hmm. all that stuff. But he would also like come back and they would go on walks yeah. and they would talk. And it was sort of like over the years of hatred, maybe they developed some sort of a friendship. But towards the he end, was, she was the only one that had been there the entire that's time true. or something yeah. like that. Yeah, she had taken kind of Just, the same despite trip Despite her with getting him. fucking sorted by mm-hmm. her freaking horse boy. Yeah. Yeah, she was going to she pound town. She was loyal town. to him with, in, with, with the exception of that. So um, their marriage is annulled. He's back on the market. He's being shopped around like a sweet piece of ass because he is Napoleon. Um, Alexander, after their little uh, foray that they had out on the barge during the peace treaty, Alexander comes to him, and I believe it was like his younger sister. 13 years old. Yeah, he pitched her to him, and Napoleon's like, yeah, that's kind of nice. or something like that. This ain't bad. But him getting on an age, he knew he's like, I have to wait until she's of age. So I'm going to have to wait like five years before I can. Put, I don't know if that like, was five years at that years, point. Maybe. Man, I'm going to have to wait two years <laughs> before I can put one in mm-hmm. her. So he shoots that down. And then by the weirdest of consequences and circumstances, he gets involved with a woman named Mary Louise, who was a, her aunt was uh, the lady that ate cake. Oh, uh, Marie Antoinette. Yes. And who also, uh, she was one of the people during the French Revolution earlier on in this story that also got killed. Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I think she, she was married to the king. Yeah. Yeah. The king of Austria. So no, Mary she Louise. she was married to the king of France. Oh, She okay. was a, a relative or she was a member of the... Austrian court or whatever. So she was one of King George's. So in a weird way, as it comes, comes back around, um, Napoleon finds himself with the daughter of the King of Austria. And she was a lot older. She was 19. Yeah. (laughs) He wasn't worried about that at that point. No, she was of childbearing age. So that creates kind of a, and I think he does get her pregnant. He does. At some point. And they have, uh, Napoleon the third or Napoleon the second. That's right. Now, um, there is such thing as Napoleon III. He actually did come to power in France. He did rule for a while. I think it was in the 1860s that he ruled. He was actually... <coughs> sorry, big hit. He was uh, Napoleon's nephew. cousin. Or nephew, nephew, yes. Nephew. He was his brother's son. Um, allegedly may have been Napoleon's son because Napoleon had hooked his brother up with this chick and... 
he might have slipped in there. And he also got really, her. like, was really invested in the kid. Yeah. Like, it was, like, his his favorite or some shit. So, Napoleon II pops out. Um, he actually named Napoleon III before he named Napoleon II, mm-hmm. which a little bit odd. Kind of weird. Maybe saved the second for a kid of his own that was going to be legitimate. Um, so, he is married into the... Austrian family. Yeah. So, that that's kind of... that. That kind of solidifies maybe Austria quit trying to fucking start shit. Do you think that was what happened? Was they came to or he came to Austria? He's like, you got any hot women? Like, if we marry him into somebody, maybe he'll quit picking on us and yeah. kicking the shit. They out were of starting us. shit. Yeah. Well, maybe it takes won't two to ten. I get it. Yeah. yeah. Um. <clears throat> so as his his home life is kind of rounding into form. Russia starts realizing that this whole continental system that's going on is pretty much a big issue for their economy. And Russia turns around and looks back to England. They used to buy our trees. We used to buy plenty from them. We had a pretty good relationship. It was like their three biggest things were lumber, tar, and hemp. Boat building materials. It was all the fucking boat building materials. So they needed to get back in with Britain. And push comes to shove. Russia finally just tells France, hey. Alexander's pissed. He's like, you yeah. fucking deny my sister? That, that too How was How dare a- you dishonor me, you fucking French piece of shit? And he looks at Great Britain. He's like, another coalition. We're open for business again. <laughs> he just looks across and goes, coalition? <laughs> he just gets a nod from just a thumbs, just a thumbs up. up from Great Britain. <laughs> and guess what? It's on. Uh, the Sixth Coalition was... The second to last, well, kind of the last official coalition that they go against. And again, it really didn't go well for Russia because, um, well, it, it went well, well for them. Because the entire thing is before the sixth coalition even happens, when does the invasion of Russia happen, man? The invasion of Russia happens after the coalition's formed. No, oh, that's right. And it starts off, um, Napoleon enters, Mo- or before he enters Moscow. Moscow, Moscow, however you say it in Russia. Um, They start moving into Russia, and Russia's just pulling back. This becomes an issue because everywhere else that they had fought before, they would usually, like, run the kings out of the city, and so they could take over the city. But they kind of knew, like, the kings would have to be at arm's length Mm in the city still. Russia is so big and so barren that you can just run. Like there's so yeah. many places to retreat. Well, that they you can always get back they from. always had like sight or sign of like the enemy troops. They they, they, they held up just like a day ahead of them or something yeah. like that. And and initially Napoleon was like, I'm just gonna go like a hundred miles into to Russia. And he went with a very big force. Yeah, and it was also like summer. I want to say it was. I think it was over five hundred thousand because he loses about a million. It was four hundred fifty. I think. Oh, was it? Yeah. But so, he ends up. It, just, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that part of it. But he, his initial force was mm-hmm. that. So, and also, this is kind of something that's going to require him to fight differently than he's used to. He's used to having these kind of smaller mobile forces mm-hmm. that can support each other, but can also kind of be standalone. He now has such a large force that logistically he can't move quickly because everything takes, you know, a huge ship takes a lot longer to turn. Well, and you can only move as fast as your slowest group of And people. at this point, because there are so many of them, you cannot live off the land in Russia. You so can't they, live off the land in Russia even with a few people. It's Russians sparks. can't live off the land yeah. in Russia. 
but so you have to have a supply train as well. So they're moving, you know, much slower than a force of Napoleon's would. And they get to that hundred miles and Napoleon at that point is just kind of like, we've fought a couple little, little things. We know they're going to be right there. And instead of just being like, we'll go another hundred miles. He's like, nah, fuck it. We're just going to go the rest of the way to Moscow. And it's like 700 total miles. They held supplies. I believe it was for 12 days. Initially. Yes. And so they didn't have, like you were talking about the supply lines. There were no train tracks set. There was no way to get things fast to these guys. But of course, Napoleon wanting to prove the point, wanting to get to Russia, I'm assuming it's weird because I feel like once they got into Moscow, which we'll get to, why didn't he just start moving shit into Moscow? Like, why didn't they just occupy that territory and take it over? Moscow? Yeah, just like slowly moving into Russia from France, like bringing other supplies up and up and up until they got there. Oh, until they got to Moscow. Well, and then like actually sat in Moscow and occupied it before it got burned down. Oh, well... I don't think they could have controlled that as soon as it started getting occupied. Just because they would have gotten weak back there where the supply lines were. Yeah, it was just moving too slow. But, I mean, the entire way they're going, they're running into things. Like, you don't think of, like, a Russian summer, but, like, they're moving through, like, swamp areas where there's, Russian summer's bad, too. Like, malaria and shit, and they had, like, people getting sick, a bunch of people dying along the way. Typhoid fever? Oh, typhoid. Was that what it was? Was typhoid? I think it was typhoid. And so, I mean, he ends up getting most of his troops and they go all the way to Moscow and they get to Moscow and it's a fucking ghost town. He it did, is completely abandoned. He did some fucked up shit along the way too. Oh yeah. People got typhoid. Did you read about that? Where he showed up to like this hospital tent that had like thousands of people that had typhoid in oh, it. Oh, to do the photo or the painting yeah. or something like that. And he went around and met with them and all that. And then as he was leaving, he told the nurse to like put poison in all of their drinks and kill yes. them. But, but he had it commissioned as a painting. Yeah. And before then it, that happened. it portrayed him as almost like a Christ-like figure uh-huh. reaching out to this typhoid ridden freaking soldier. Like he was going to fucking heal him. And then he just and whacked he, them all. And, yeah. And he's like, <laughs> uh, just so like they can never speak about this and also infect you and just kill everyone. He did it cool though. Cause I think he said that he gave him a, or he gave him a bunch of opiates. So, Oh yeah. At least so they, they were went flying high, high as they drifted off. Yep. So well, they get, I believe it was a, I don't know if it was a hundred miles outside of Russia or outside of Moscow, Moscow. Fuck. But, uh, they end up running into the Battle of Borodino. I don't know if that was to hold off for the whole Russian or for the whole people that were in to finish getting out of Moscow. Yeah, um, they won that and they kept moving on because Moscow was so close. They roll into Moscow, like you say, there's just nothing there. The town's been abandoned completely. It's been everything that could be used as like supplies has been taken. Like Everybody's, the Kremlin is like abandoned and everything. Yeah. Like he he can see the domes of the Kremlin. He says as he as he marches on Moscow, and they get there and they start moving into the town to get through it, and all of a sudden the fucking Russians left behind a bunch of criminals <laughs> and like prisoners that they'd released. Yeah. They're like, you're free, but here's your condition: when you see these fucking French assholes, you burn this fucking place. Start to the lighting everything up, and fire. they start burning in the whole city. Like they mm-hmm. end up burning down like what, like a third or a half the city. Then they killed all the animals and threw them into the water supply. So it poisoned the water yep. supply so they can't use any of that shit. So for like the next five weeks, they're camped out in like the ruins of Moscow or, or like the place that are still intact. Um, Napoleon is staying in the Kremlin and has like a portrait brought from France or had like had one brought with him. Of his son, wasn't it? 
It was the Mona Lisa. I thought it was of his son. It was Mona Lisa, I think. I almost, I'm like 80% sure it was the Mona Lisa, dude. Well, I have to go 50-50 coin flip on that. I want to say it was a picture of his son because he he stayed in the Kremlin and was doting about it. Oh. But either way, it was a situation where they were still trying to survive in a town that was completely vacant and had no resources. And they're in there for, what did you say, it was five weeks? Yeah. And they're getting closer and closer to the one time, well, not the one time, but the most important time not to be in Russia. And after a while, they've sat in there for long enough. They're like, okay, we've we've done what we need to. There's people that are dying here. We're getting sick. There's no way to sustain these many pe- or this many people. Let's uh, let's head back into to France. And on the way back, they caught uh, the scariest thing that I can think of in existence: Russian winter. It came a month early. Yeah, and that's like that's, at this time, it came a month early. That's the other thing that you just can't write. Like even Mother Nature, after it had saved him with the fog, it was like eh, this, we're is, not, this nah. is yeah, this is fate going. You, <laughs> you you played your hand, Icarus. You flew too close to the sun. Austerlitz was your big deal. Now we're coming back with vengeance. So through a combination of the weather, everything that happened, um, also being harassed essentially by like Russian like tribes and cavalry and stuff like that. They're getting attacked from the rear because mm-hmm. everybody that was hiding on the other side of Moscow has just followed yep. them right back through. He leaves with 450, 40,000. 450,000. 40,000 make it back to France. Yeah. They said that all in total, they believe that he lost over a half million people in Russia, a half million soldiers. That would be more than he went with. Well, they were still sending people back through. Were they? I'm sure that there were secondaries and thirds that were coming okay. through. Just to probably try to resupply or anything like that. But you lose that many people out of your army, you just have nothing left. I mean, it, to return with 40,000 people, how in the, or 40,000 soldiers, how are that you are supposed to... That are just beaten to, to shit. It's not like, you guys want to fight again? Yeah. Uh, nobody wants to go back through that because he just marched them into hell and then brought them back through frozen hell. So after everyone sees what the Russians did to him, everyone was like, is there a collision going on? And we didn't hear it. Is there, is there a collision? <laughs> so everyone that wasn't in on it jumps in. So Prussia gets in on it. Sweden gets in on it. Great Britain was in on it the whole time. They, but they didn't do anything. Now Spain and Portugal are like, yeah, we'll collo- they're collision back. up. They're back. So they're back. So his brother is not the king anymore. So it wasn't he gets brother, deposed, his brother. I think. And um, I think he ends up abdicating and going back to France or something like that. He probably felt the heat because his brother was getting his ass kicked in Russia. So somehow, fuck, I don't know how. So Napoleon is able to raise up 340,000 French soldiers. And at this point, Not they the are people the way too young and they are people way past the age. And, and he still has some normal troops, but nowhere near as many as he used to. And everything that he had to abandon in Russia as far as cannons, any guns that they had, anything. Yeah, like all that, that got all, left. Yeah, it's all gone. So a couple of the big battles that happen, and it's all a downward slide at this point. There's, uh, there's Dresden was pretty big. He, he had some victories yeah. and everything, but it's just the attrition because he had all of these alliances or it's, all of these armies that were already allied, just being able to feed in more men to the meat grinder, and Napoleon had nothing to re- resupply. Uh, it's like we talked about in the Civil War. Part of the reason why the Union won the Civil War was because they had more to throw at it. Mm-hmm. And you have this massive uh, Sixth Coalition 
that you're getting troops from if he wins in Dresden and wipes out a bunch of I think it was Russian. He troops. was trying to go for like a big home run victory. Yeah. And it's like, look what I did. Don't no else fuck with me. But at the same time, everybody else is like, okay, well, they were unsuccessful. Now we'll send in this force. They were unsuccessful. Now we'll send in this and yeah, force. Yeah, like, we're chipping away at you yeah. regardless. Yeah, they're going to lose eventually. So the Battle of Leipzig was the big one during the Sixth Coalition, and I think was the worst. All of this, during this entire time, this is the area of time called the Napoleonic Wars. This whole time that Napoleon is emperor and is doing all of this shit. And it might have even been before he was emperor. I don't know if they considered that before or after, because it's all Napoleon. Yeah, he was still in charge of what yeah. was going on. So the Battle of Leipzig is the, no, I don't know if it's the largest, but it's the one that has the most casualties. So at the no, Battle of Leipzig did. total combined is 900,000. That's, uh, excuse me, I don't know as far as the East Coast goes, but that might be like New Hampshire. Yeah. Just New Hampshire's just all dead. That's that's so many people. And, and I think prior to Leipzig, I don't know if it was after, sorry, but he gets proposed essentially like a treaty called the Frankfurt Proposal where everyone is like, hey. It was after they took Paris. Was it? Yep. So uh, they've had the fight taken to them and there's really not a lot that they can do. The forces start advancing into France um, they of course head straight for Paris because that's where they need to be to really make some headway. Um, just not to fast forward through it, but there's just a lot of stuff that goes on as far as the wars that they fight. They get to Paris, um, Paris falls as, um, uh, Napoleon is like at the castle. He knows what's going on. Well, no, they, the Frankfurt proposal was while they were still... He turned it down, remember? Because he thought he was still going... Wasn't this after they sacked Paris, though? No. So prior to... I thought that was what moved him to take mm, the proposal. He didn't accept it. Okay. So I think it was prior to Leipzig, they um, presented him with the Frankfurt proposal, and they, they basically said, you can still be emperor of France, you're going to lose some of the lands and you're going to go back to your original size your before you start borders. all this shit. Yeah, your natural borders. And he was still in a position where he's like, I think I could maybe still win this. He waited too long and they withdrew the offer. And then now it gets to the point where he had only like 70,000 soldiers left. And that's when they just came in. And and when they came into Paris, they the way that they treated him, because I think it was the British that might have... Or they were part of the, the coalition that, that went in there. Everybody had an axe to grind with him. Everyone did, but I'm not saying he just got like strung up and killed like the king of France did during the revolution. Well, there again, it was another situation where uh, had they done that, it would have been very bad PR. That's why they didn't else. do it. It would have looked like they were killing a monarch and it uh. was like, oh, now any country can come in and kill the royal family or like the <laughs> leaders. So it was like they're, they were hamstrung. They're like, we want to kill this guy so it fucking bad. The first reason that they had to go in there and try to shut down France and what they were doing mm-hmm. is the opposite of the reason <laughs> why they're letting him live it. at this point. So they pretty much make a deal with Napoleon and they say, all right, here's here's the deal, man. We're going to let you, we're, we're not even going to imprison you. We're going to give you an island in the Mediterranean, and you're going to get to be the emperor of that island and live out your days. And this wasn't like even a, it was a small island, in, I mean, in comparison, in the middle of the goddamn Mediterranean. It was called Elba, right? Elba, yeah. What was E-L-B-A. the population? It was like 
12,000. It was a decent sized population for an island. And he had like a large house that was created, almost like a palace and everything. He had like a consigliere that was underneath him. He had actual connections back to um, the... He wasn't supposed to. Well, not back to France, but they had a... After all this happened the first time, England made everybody get their poop in a group. They got their shit in order and they created almost like a a massive not a coalition of really groups but like everybody yeah everybody that was around France they started this coalition with because it was they like knew the pre United Nations yeah, type yes shit. exactly yes. it was like a standing new United Nations because they knew that like we're not gaining anything just by fighting and killing and going back and mm-hmm. forth. Like it just looks bad for all of us to be yeah. warring nations. If we all just make we finally sure just got rid of the problem. It, Let's nobody yep. else start being a problem. Yeah. If we can all agree to not be a problem, everything's going to be cool. And we need to make sure that if anybody like Napoleon comes back or if Napoleon comes back, little foreshadowing there, uh, we're ready and prepared to fuck this guy up. So he goes down to this Island and basically sends to have his uh, Austrian wife and his child sent to him. She's like, I'm going to head back to Vienna. But uh, you take the kid. Yeah. And so he's also given like a thousand soldiers and they're like the most loyal soldiers to him. They're his like personal guard. And then someone from Great Britain. He's is, got a naval fleet. He gets one or two boats. I thought he had a fleet. No, he gets one or two. Because he needed to be defensible. Nope. He would have, there was a liaison from Great Britain down there that was keeping, that was supposed to keep an eye on him and everything. They were friendly. That was the connection to the like pre-UN. Yes. And so like they would play like chess together and do all that kind of shit. So he's on this fucking island. He's already been allowed to live and live in like complete luxury for the rest of his life. Plays Sim City again, gets them streets, sets up garbage collection, yep. writes gets them a his, constitution. He gets his island in order. He gets all the docks going, the fishing stuff. Yeah. He, he, he just starts his thing running like a well-oiled machine. He has to build around him every single time. And that's why I don't understand why they didn't try to just stay in Moscow and write it out. Because everywhere that he goes, he tries to make better and tries to, to out do it. The way you think it would have. I also think by the time he got there and the reason that he was in Russia before that and kind of everything that happened afterwards... He just slipped. His mind went in a different direction. Yeah. He, didn't, he didn't have the same fire that he did before. It was like his first major loss that forced him to turn tail and be like, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Yeah, and I think it's just because he wasn't as sharp as he used to be. He went to kind of old, lazy fighting styles. Mm-hmm. He didn't stick with kind of the innovation that he was known for, and he just sort of fell apart. It was like he kind of lost the fire to do it, and then by the time he realized he lost the fire, he was very sick. Um, he ends up trying to poison himself before he goes to Elba. He, yep. And but because he always work. carried poison in case he got captured and because he carried the poison with him <laughs> through the Russian winter, <laughs> it had diminished essentially the chemicals. Of, it like, just the gave him the shits basically. And it just fucking like poisoned his gut for like a shit ton of like a couple weeks. Um, but he was worn down when they were on their way into Russia. He was like in a carriage. He wasn't on a horse. He had really bad hemorrhoids, I guess, because I could see a guy in power having issues taking a number two. But uh, he was in bad shape. He was a shell of himself. He wasn't one of the guys out there making things happen. There were reports back when he was in his he heyday. Step. Yeah. When he was in his heyday and they would have meals he it was said that he would have like his watchmen be able to have drinks before him like he would make sure that they were served mm-hmm. he would kind of butter everybody else up he wasn't doing that shit anymore he was in a carriage he had all the luxuries i think they said when they went into russia he actually 
brought like a classically trained Parisian chef with them to cook for him the entire time. Just the creature comforts that made him soft. And that could be why all this happened. Nobody more problems. But when he's down in Elba, it's like he's almost gaining that edge back. Like he needs to be a part of it again. He wants to be, he probably wasn't pumped that he lost in the first place. So he knew he had to avenge that. But then it's like he got healthy down there too. Like he got yeah. right to come back. That nice Mediterranean environment and yeah. climate man just reinvigorates you. Probably a nice tan, olive Italian skin. So he still has support in France at this point. So they can't let him off or let him have any contact with anyone in France. Well, he ends up finding out that this British liaison guy likes to go visit a certain woman or something on, and the island is within eye, like eyesight of Corsica, I think. Likes to go yeah. over to this place in Corsica and see this woman. So I think he finds out what the schedule is that he's seeing and somehow cr- escapes this island. Like, um, with one of, like, the warships, they repaint it to look like a British ship and gets him back into France. Him getting into France was a very big deal because at the time he had found out it was, like, King George VIII, I believe, was the one that they had brought back. And he was actually from from the French lineage. And and the thing was is he wasn't doing well. No. Like, France was, was, like, not doing well at all. And some of it probably has to do with what Napoleon had just done and killed off, like, fucking 300 400,000 of them. Probably could take men. some blame there, yeah. Yeah, it's But a, the way it looked is it looked like the French king was causing all this issues. So And he wasn't good even by himself. He was old. He was trying to bring back the monarchy. He was trying to bring back rule the, chur- by, the church like really heavily yes, and everything like yeah. against all the things that the people had grown accustomed to not having and enjoyed that. Yeah. So it's there is more sympathies towards Napoleon because they kind of remember the good times. Um he just the way that he kind of collected troops as he moved back towards Paris. He would run into them. He had like, I think 500 or a thousand, the ones that he brought Uh with him, got them over somehow. And the first like guards he ran into or troop like regiment, he walked up to the guy and like had his sword against him or something like that. And said, if you're against your general, go ahead and kill me or something like that. He would open up his jacket and he would basically expose his heart. Mm -hmm. And he would say, if you believe that this is right, yeah, kill kill me now. Yeah, if you're no longer loyal to your emperor, like general Uh, or something like that. And just collected. It worked. Yes, and collected (laughs) a ton of troops walking back up to Paris. Enough so that he basically just walked in and retook power. Yeah, Fat ass King George VIII saw it and knew that that wasn't going to be something because if he could get the army back that fast, there's no chance that it would take a long time for him to get the rest of the population back. Like that was going to be a very quick, swift victory. So, what do you what do you do next? You just regained <laughs> your rule back in France. <laughs> the last thing you would want to do is start shit, right? Yeah. It, it seems like it, but he was back. Like he was out riding a horse again. He That's was right. pumping up the guys. He wanted to bring the old. He wanted to get the old band back together for one last Little ride. Corporal's back, baby. Hey, he knew that there was probably like he knew of the whole new UN kind of setup that they had going on. He knew that everybody was going to be coming after him. His thought was if he could meet them and beat them before they were able to like become one big massive mm-hmm. force. That he would stand a chance. Or at least and, beat a couple of them and then yeah. be like, I just want, I'll, I'll take the last deal. Yeah, like, I'll, yeah, I'll he wanted them, them to be able them to, to offer that deal or uh-huh. some shit. Well, how did that work? Not, not good. Um, he seemed to do okay kind of towards the beginning. Like, not good, but not great. 
And it was sort of ironically enough at this point, the artillery and technology had actually surpassed Napoleon and the British had actual like rifles instead of like the musket that cartridge rifles. They said that they could pick a Frenchman off from like 400 yards. Yep. And like howitzers and shit. And so Napoleon is already, he's got like 200,000 of, I cannot imagine desired the most desirable (laughs) selection of like troops. And basically is like, all right, let's do this thing. And gets, he gets relatively smoked, man. Yeah. Uh, the battle of Waterloo, I believe is what it is. Mm -hmm. The kind of ultimate, um, I think that's the most studied battle like in, in, I guess like, warfare history well and it's something that seems so simple to chalk up because when you look at it from the outside it's guy that knows he doesn't stand a chance needs to throw a hail mary throws hail mary intercepted and then run back for a touchdown like it's just such a it was an all or nothing deal but there was no chance that he was ever going to get to all and he really didn't it was just an ass kicking to the nth degree and uh, what was the deaths at Waterloo? Are you oh, looking it up? Yeah. It was so many. <laughs> and they, uh, to his credit, not that he needs it, but they took out a lot of other soldiers. Like, they, the Allied forces were... Oh, they just had to overwhelm them. That's mm-hmm. the only reason that the French lost. It was literally France against the UK, Prussia, Netherlands... Um, what was considered Hanover, Brunswick, Nassau. And here's the other thing is Napoleon had kind of finally at this point met his counterpart. It was this dude named the Duke of Wellington. He was, was ever bad dude. He was, he was pretty much Napoleon. He was the British version of Napoleon. He hadn't lost any battles or anything like that. And during the, the battle, it was a total of like 73,000 for Napoleon. So after a few of these skirmishes, when he first started, he didn't have much left. No. And then about... I don't know, 120,000 for, uh, for what would be considered the allies. And yeah, the French lost 33,000, had 33,000 casualties and Wellington's army had 21,700 total. So you lose half your army as the French Napoleonic army. Yeah. And they, they call the entire time, like Napoleon's return to power. I think they call it like the hundred days. Yeah. Cause he was only in power for like two and a half months, something like that. So you would think after this. Napoleon, they they get Napoleon again, and they say, dude, the fuck? Like, we set you up on, like, a tropical island. Like, what are you fucking doing here? And he's like... And you still broke out. It's it's like a goddamn fucking TJF sitcom. He's like, did I do that? (laughs) And so this time, they fucking stuff his ass on a British warship and take him to Britain, leave him on a warship while they're deciding what to do with him. And I will say, though, um, to his credit, once he knew that he lost at Waterloo and tried to get the hell out of there, um, his first thought was to come to the U.S. as a citizen and try to live out his days. Oh, that's right. And he was noble enough to say no, because that would look like I just turned tail and run. I don't want to look like a spineless coward. I'm going to stay and take my poison. So he actually, he turns himself in. He's like, oh shit, where's my poison? He's like, I actually <laughs> thought I had literal poison on me. Fuck no, I'll take the deal. <laughs> yeah, so he rolls up and turns himself into this English warship, which, I mean, he 
didn't have a lot of options because they were patrolling pretty heavily. So for him to actually make it to America, it probably would have been yeah, tough. not not especially after this is literally them going after like public enemy number one of this yeah. entire coalition. So yeah, he was John Dillinger. He so at this point, they're deciding what to do with him, and they send him to another island. They're like, "We're gonna give you another island. Don't leave this one." And so they're like, "This one is not as nice." based on what fucking happened when you left the first island. No, no. Uh, St. Helens, or St. Ellens. Which is located about halfway between France and Brazil in the Atlantic Ocean. It was basically like a trade stop. Yeah, it was a basically if you wrecked your ship, you want to try to get there, there was at least some land. Uh-huh. And this thing was like 12 miles by 6 miles. Not big. Not big at all. Did not have a, a large populace of people really to to rule over anything. The other choice they made was they put like an actual patrolling um two Navy. patrolling warships yeah. around that. Yeah, and they, man, that that fucking sucks. Like to be like that's your <laughs> order. They're like, so what am I supposed to do? Well, you're going to Saint what was it, Saint, Saint Helene? Helens. Saint Helens? What what do you mean? Well, you're just gonna steer around this 12 mile by six mile island like all day just in a circle for how long i don't know until someone comes and takes your place i guess (laughs) like how do you that's like the shit detail when they're like we're sending you to siberia you fucked up we're sending the admiral's daughter (laughs) so and he they build him a house they call it the long house it basically looks like it's not a small house it's not like a shack this isn't that fucking little shanty from the first harry potter movie that's out in the fucking stormy sea. No, his first house, the one that he had in Elba, was like um, a villa, like, El Padrone. It was like yes. when um, Pablo Escobar arrested himself, and he's oh, like, and "I'm going to build this. Yeah, I'm going to build yeah. this compound. You just let me live in it. You can patrol the shit out of that." Yeah. St. Ellen's was a little bit different. It was just he had a taskmaster that was there, kind of not like torturing him, but just doing everything by the book. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't getting any of these he little wasn't be his buddy or anything like that. Yeah. He's like, Nope, you're here for a fucking reason, dude. He wasn't banging be some, you're here. Yeah. He wasn't banging some chick no. on Corsica that Napoleon could use to his advantage. No. Like it was. So the thing about this too, is like this Island was like within like the trade winds and all that kind of shit. So like his house would be up in like the mist for oh, like yeah. the first like <laughs> six hours of the day. And it was, everything was fucking wet. So it was pretty, I mean, for what they offered, they're like, well, we're giving you a house in an island. You're like, at least you're alive, I guess. Well, and you say no to that. It's like, okay, then we'll kill you. And, yeah, the house might be cool. And apparently there was some thought that, like, he was going to try to establish himself in South America. Like, there was a plot to try to rescue him from that island because mm-hmm. there was some French type of influence over in South America at the time. And he would go create, essentially, like, a new empire between, like, Brazil and Chile and Argentina. Something like that. Well, yeah, he still had a little bit of an axe to grind with the Spaniards, and they were the ones that were kind of the dominant force. That's right. He had allies over there because when he took over, all those countries that were under Spanish rule, they all got their independence. And so they were like, Napoleon, number one. So, I mean, he could have, but it was just such a far-fetched idea that it seems like it wasn't. So so he ends up... uh, after some time on this island, he ends up uh, developing the same fate that his father ended up developing and gets stomach cancer. Just, it must have been hereditary. It could have been from the 
the low dose poison that he drank. <laughs> Several things that could have caused that. Yeah, there were contributing factors to it. He really wasn't, he was like 54? He wasn't terribly old, was he? No, I don't think he was. Uh, just some quick historically high math. Born in 1769, died in 1840. That would make him 61? Eight, no, 1820. Oh, 1840 he died. Yeah. Uh, no, that wouldn't make him 61. That was bad math. Uh, that is 31 plus 40, 71. Okay. 71's fairly old, I guess. Especially for that time. Yeah. But he... I want to say, and this could be just completely shooting from the hip and wrong, but when he was exiled to Elba, his mom was still alive. Like, they were a hearty stock. They lived for a long time. Did I get the dates wrong? He's 52. So I got the dates way wrong. He died in May 1821. Definitely way wrong. Yeah. 1840 was way off. So yeah, he was in his 50s. Yeah, just negate all that bad math that I just did. That was really bad. That's That falls in the 20% that's not always accurate, but we made amends. And when he died, he essentially kind of just took his last breath, essentially, and the last words were France, Josephine, and whatever translates to the army, head of the army. So... It's like he ran through the highlight reel of his life right before he died. Yep. And then eventually, they actually... Um, he was buried on that island, wasn't he? Yeah, I don't think they brought him back. To no, France. they did. Oh, did they? Yeah, eventually they brought back his um, coffin, and he has. There's a place in um, Paris called Napoleon's tomb, and he's interned in like a big red stone sarcophagus. Can you see him? I mean, not him. Oh, but you can see the actual sarcophagus, but got to be skeleton at this point, right? I I would imagine, yeah. But I mean, this is somebody that. <sighs> Like I told you, I I thought I knew a little bit about it. Realized I didn't know shit about this guy, and oh, he just took it too far. He got so excited. He's like, "I'm just gonna keep going." I think age just caught up with him. I think he he, he didn't he didn't have a reason to go fight Russia. He yeah. didn't have a reason to do anything after a couple of the treaties beforehand. He didn't. You know what? You don't leave the island. You got away with one. You're I, on an island. A tropical island, and you're just like... Oh, at that point, Elba, yes. yeah, come yeah. on. Yeah, when he was exiled the first time, that was probably a good stopping point. I thought you were talking about even, like, pre-Russia. Yeah, I was talking about that. There were so many stopping points. There were, but that first stopping point, I would say, wouldn't be one. Because I think he knew, eventually, that he had stirred enough shit up that it was not going to end well. Because no matter what happened, he I knew I don't think he ever coming. knew that until... Until Russia happened, I think he fully believed that he was walking in the footsteps of Caesar and Alexander, which ironically so, they went too far and they got themselves killed. So he didn't learn their lesson. No, he, he, yeah, he never he, thought he was going to get to the point of that. He followed the path all the way to the end. Yeah. And that was just, he should, he had stopping points, like you say, but he wanted to be better than them. Yeah. And just, I imagine he's. If he were, like, still alive today and could look back at his legacy, I think he would probably... Like, you can put him up there with Caesar. You can put him up there with Alexander. You can mm-hmm. put him up there with the greatest land takers of all time. That That's what I'll say. I'll say that there, when you think of, like, Napoleon and you learn this, that's who you kind of compare him to. Questionable characters yeah. and everything. Warlords, basically, in essence, of course. Um, 
that that just wanted to to rule as much land as possible, which in itself is you know maniacal and everything. But what's crazy is to say that that's not like what you consider the worst of it. Yeah, no, he, he, he's, he's bad. As far as land so takers go, so much worse. You're just like, well, I guess Napoleon wasn't like, and he did go through some scenarios where he killed prisoners. Oh yeah, and everything and it didn't yeah, look good. But people. for the most part, he wasn't like picking on us. And he's like, I'm going to wipe out the you, and I'm going to wipe you out and everything. He wasn't genocidal. Yeah, he was just. I want everything. Yeah, he just yeah. wanted your land. Yes, and. I really, this is sort of like what I was talking about earlier, just drawing parallels between like him and a Hitler or him and Germany. Like, World War One was kind of like his exile to Elba. Like, we're going to give you a pass. We're not going to completely annihilate you. You can keep your shit World sort War of. World War One was whose exile to Elba? Like, Germany losing World War One mm-hmm. was kind of like, oh, okay, yes. we're going to set you up in a way to where like, we're not going to take everything away from mm-hmm. you. You still have the perks of being what you are, but there's going to be some You're going to feel so diminished yeah. that you feel like you have to do this other thing. Yeah, that's... And, yeah, and again, that's, we lost the oversight while he was on Elba mm-hmm. and... He didn't he, consider him a threat. Yeah. Yep. He built his way back into something and then he had World War Two. World War Two was definitely more successful than Napoleon's second ride, but he needed to be beaten again. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, like, you start, you know, you have a desire to become a dictator. There's a dictator starter kit where you're just reading everybody's biography that came before you. So you just get Caesar and Alexander and Napoleon, and then you get this guy, and you're just reading them up, and then it's like, now I write my book. And then mm. your book is just the last one in the fucking pile. I mean, we still have them. I mean, the shit still goes on I today. know, but what I'm saying is, like, the next guy up that's going to try this is going to be... Well, it's going to be whoever was in the Kaiser in World War One or whatever. But then Hitler's going to come after that, and he's just still reading about Napoleon and reading about Caesar and Alexander and all this shit. You, you think know Hitler read about them? I'm positive he read about those guys. I never thought about I will be that. extremely shocked when we do the episode on him if we do not find out that information very easily. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I think he, I think he envisioned himself in that type of role. Just like Napoleon envisioned himself in that type of role. And then he thought because they weren't of the Aryan race Dude, and pure it's, that they couldn't do it. It's the absolute power. Cor- I know that's so cliche and shit, but it's the absolute power corrupts absolutely shit. But it's like a serial killer reading up on other serial killers. Pretty much. All right, man. Well, I know we kept in class a little bit late tonight, but you know what? I think it was worth it. Yeah, Napoleon's cool as shit. All right, guys. Well, we'll talk to you later. See you for on the next episode. Peace. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us for another episode. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe and like button. Follow us. If you didn't like what you heard, still hit that anyway, because we'll probably cover something in the future that you do like. Um, Please follow us on our social media. Adam, hit him with it. Uh, Our Instagram is historically high pod, historically high pod. And we are on Twitter at historically high. That's historically H.I. All right. And if you guys want to send in any feedback, suggestions, hit us up on those two, or you can even do it on Gmail. It's historically high podcast at gmail.com. Uh, thanks again. Peace.